All right, fellas. I don't know how up to date everyone is on the news right now, but uh, hot on the wire is this. Uh, there's some Bitcoin chicanery going on. So somebody may or may not have stolen 4.5 billion Bitcoin. I have no idea. It might be 3.6. I don't know the full story. We have to talk about it. But our boy Doug Boneparth just tweeted this, and he just he's good, man. He's got the setup and the punchline. There it is. How to make 4.5 billion dollars. There you go. Steal 120,000 Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> this is meme of the week for everyone. Yeah. To kick us off. We'll, we'll go through the story, but why don't we tell uh, everybody that's listening, or if you're watching, you're probably seeing a fourth individual here. We have a special guest today. Yeah. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of No Investment Advice. As always, it is Bilal Zaidi you're here, and we've got Jack Butcher from Visualize Value, Trunk Fan, me, Master Flex himself. But we've got a special guest, as Trunk just said. Rick, what's happening, mate? Everyone, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining, man. So, Rick, I think a lot of people follow you on Twitter in our world, but who the hell are you, man? Why do we get you on to join today, man? What's going on? Yeah, sure. I actually paused tweeting a few months ago because I decided to focus on building entirely. Um, and But when I was on Twitter, and, and why people may or may not have heard of me, but um, I've been heavily involved with the Ethereum community um, and uh, and have some kind of strong opinions on how products that interact with protocols should work, both how they should be financed, how they should be built, um, and how they should help people. And, and some of those opinions, um, I think, uh, have been in the form of like actual software. So I've built projects called, uh, called Balance, have contributed to other projects uh, in the ecosystem. And then some of those opinions have been you know, taking aim at some of the largest uh, ICOs of the kind of 2017, 2018 era. And so a lot of people kind of heard of me when I took like my, put all my energy into just firing shots at EOS and their kind of multi-billion dollar raise. So I hope to really spend more time like focusing on great products, but I'm also not scared of calling out what I see as just like multi-billion dollar scams. Completely. Okay, fair enough. And you also were, if I'm correct, an early Stripe employee. Is this also your claim to fame? Uh, I mean, I would say that that kind of claim is earned if you actually reach your cliff date. Uh, I did not reach my cliff date. Uh, you know, I, I, they, 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 you should say that you're an early Stripe employee if you make it 366 days. And I think I made it about 121. So, uh, so, so what I would say is I'm an early Stripe acceptee of a job, uh, but a, also an early firee. Um, but I mean, there are seven <laughs> early team members who are fired. We need this me, story, Rick. What's going Wait, on? Wait, yeah, is... Rick. So hold on, hold on here. Uh, let me tee this up. Uh, we don't need to spend too much time on this because I know that Ethereum is probably what the listeners want to hear. Yeah, about. no, no. I, I do. I love talking about my failures, of which there are many, uh, and there's plenty more enough. coming. <laughs> well, you you've written, and I'm sure some of the listeners have read. You wrote something <clears throat> uh, alluding to meeting Jedi's. Is that the terminology? But meeting the, the Carlson brothers. Yeah, you so, explain like, what that was. Absolutely. So like that, I have this post that's called like Aliens, Jedi and Cults. And it's just my terms that I use to describe what it feels like at the beginning of some of these projects I've stumbled through. Um, and really, like no one could meet the Collisons even in 2012 and get an hour of their time, which was extremely valuable and come away with the impression of, of anything other than these people are going to do something really special. Um, and like, a couple of things really indicated that. I remember asking John, you know, do you think you'll sell? Uh, because I've seen that's a common pattern among kind of average founders is as soon as they get that juicy offer that gets them the home in Aspen, they dip out. 
Um, and, and, and Patrick was like, ah, dude, we actually got an offer of a billion from PayPal. And, uh, you know, that's a good that, Irish I mean, accent there, man. Exactly. And like this, this, this was, you know, when they were 24 people, uh, less than two years into the company and they've been offered a billion dollars because PayPal are not dumb. There's some really smart people there and they knew these guys were focused. They knew Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and all the boys were backing them. The new Sequoia and YC were in. Uh, by the way, a little secret there, the YC did not give them the YC terms. They gave them special terms because they already knew them. So they didn't you, actually they go through them? real YC. So they always say it's a YC company, but YC did not get 7% of that cap table. I promise you that. Um, but, uh, but, but most importantly, um, there was this kind of John's side of it, which is we're never selling. And then there was Patrick's side of it, which is if we don't die, imagine what we can do. And I think... That is something that I've noticed among the great founders is they start with a very narrow thing. Like I just want to do payments more quickly and more easily, which is a very narrow thing. And then once they feel the energy coming their way, they start expanding out from there into a very grand vision. But it always starts very focused and then it expands very grand. And nobody could talk grander than Patrick. I mean, I've still got a page he emailed me of his ideas for where he's going to take Stripe. And he's only a third down that list and it's a decade in. So, I mean, you know, they were two of the most inspiring people I've ever met. But um, I am one of the least compliant employees you'll ever interact with, and, and really have. Uh, I think my total sum employee dates uh, would would be fewer than 150 days at this point. So I'm not a natural employee. I'm not a easy person at all times, and I think they were absolutely right to fire me. But I did a couple of good things there. Just one thought was in that essay, the article we will add in the show notes, and I, I encourage everyone to read it. Is you said uh, the line that really came away was uh, when you when you finished speaking with John Carlson, you're like he will be a billionaire. Is this <laughs> <laughs> definitely? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, no two ways about it. And um, um, and and really, the, the only reason that I could see those two so clearly is because I'd run a small e-commerce business selling apparel in the UK. So I'd integrated Authorize, I'd integrated PayPal. I'd integrated Google Payments even when they had Google Payments. And so to the extent that I think I got along really well with the team, it was because they, they, I was their customer, right? A small young founder trying to build something on the internet and make revenue. And so, and I had integrated all the payment systems, uh, systems and been in a lot of pain because of that, a lot of financial pain and, and entrepreneurial pain. Thanks, Siri. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, oh, goodness. Um, but the, you know, the, 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 they, I was their customer. And I think that's why we developed a bond. And, 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 and I'm just not a very good employee. Did you, uh, when you're running your e-commerce business in the UK, did you ever come up with this giant in the space known as Bilal Zaidi's Bling Bling uh, Empire? <laughs> Bling Bling King 786 original eBay. Did you ever come across OG. them in your dealings or did they ever yeah, crush no, your um, business? We were both pretty big dogs in the custom lever to these uh, space. I'm pretty sure I actually sold Jack Butcher's sister one of her, one of the, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wait, oh, okay. All right, so last question that I have, I want to pass it with Stripe related, was today Stripe announced uh, that they are making a card reader with Apple using the iPhone. Yeah. How, how, what did you, when you woke up and saw the news, <laughs> how blue are your balls? This is like everything in your life coming into one thing. <laughs> well, uh, th this theme in, goes into one theme, which is when you are strategic for Apple, they do everything to make you succeed. Okay. So when there's an area in the world that Apple wants to have an impact, but they don't want to do the work, they will do everything to make sure you win. So the three areas I've seen this up close are Sketch, 1Password, and Stripe. So with Sketch, they realize they really want to teach people what iOS and macOS design should be. 
And the sketch was the best way to articulate that to, to humanity. And then with like one password, I've watched my friend who was a part-time designer at one password go to the top and engineer that incredible series A. And they just went through a massive series B as well. You know, they realized that password security was a whole system that they didn't want to participate in entirely. They want to do some of it for regular consumers, but they don't want to do it for the enterprise. And so Apple helped make 1Password succeed. And then Stripe, I believe Apple were considering doing their own API endpoints for developers for Apple uh, Pay. And then they just realized that Stripe could take care of all of that for them. And I, I, you know, Apple Pay is such a massive revenue driver for Stripe that I think you're just seeing the partnership deepen because payments are strategic to Apple, but developers are not their kind of bread and butter, like in the sense that they don't want web developers who need an API for payments to talk to them. They want them to talk to Stripe and to use Apple Pay. So um, I think whenever you become strategic for Apple um, and, and, you, and you play by some of their rules, not all of their rules, but a lot of their rules, they, they will kingmake you essentially. And they continue to kingmake Stripe in the Valley. Is Square fucked? Because I own a lot of Square stock. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, see, I'm not smart enough to comment on public stocks. I don't really own any. And I'm, I'm not like uh, able to analyze the game at that level because I haven't even survived as an employee anywhere for four months. So I think, I think the people that can comment on large companies are the people who have worked in them and built them and like understand them. I, I wouldn't be able to comment on Square relative to Stripe. But what I can say is I'm very glad Jack is full-time on Square because I would not want to be part-time on a payments company when I'm coming up against the Collisons. It's like uh, going, to, uh, going to a pistol fight and the other two have nuclear warheads. <laughs> That's a great way to That's put it. That's a way to put it. Did Someone you guys have any that. Stripe? Yeah, who's clipping that? All right, so so Rick, we got uh, we're gonna have to we we got lots to come back to on Apple because I know you're a big fan of Johnny Ive uh, as are all of us actually, but uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about that later. But just to paint a picture for what we're gonna cover today, because this is not a normal episode, we are gonna do our normal format. We're gonna talk about things going on in Web three. So today we're gonna talk about that hack slash stolen crypto uh, situation that Trung alluded to earlier. We're also gonna have to talk about the ENS Brantley Milligan kind of situation, whatever happened in the last week. Um, people who have listened to the show for a while know we covered ENS for a while, uh, a while ago. Um, and uh, this has just been kind of an interesting story in the space uh, beyond just the cancellation style stuff, more around um, like key man risk, how DAOs work versus companies and that sort of stuff. We're also going to talk about Polygon, some layer two ETH stuff. I know you've you've met those guys. We want to get your take on that. Um, and then we're going to dig more into what Rick's working on. And uh, Trunk's going to potentially break down how YouTube is now bigger than Netflix on the advertising side. So um, lots to cover today. So let's get straight into it, boys. The first one we had here was this recent story about the... I, th I think it was a bit for Next Hack 2016, right? I think, Trung, you, you were just reading this. And yeah, I'll, uh, I'll pull but my, right, my five it. minutes of uh, Twitter internet research. This is what I found. So <laughs> <laughs> take this all with a grain of salt, but uh, it sounds like these two individuals, uh, one was, uh, 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 funny enough, a Y Combinator alumni. Uh, his name's uh, Ilya Lichtenstein. He's married to Heather Morgan, a Forbes columnist. So 2016, Blau, you're right, that was when the hack happened for Bitfinex. These two were the ones that tried to launder all that Bitcoin. And they've been doing it over the last five years. But TLDR is, uh, it sounds like the laundering was between 3.6 to 4.5 billion. But here's That's where it gets wild. pretty funny. So you know how anybody can be a Forbes blogger? Like you literally just apply to Forbes and just write anything and they'll, they'll publish you, right? 
So anyways, um, under her profile, she says uh, she's an expert in per persuasion and social engineering. God, you can't make this up, man. <laughs> you can't make it up. And then also a line, she goes... When she's not reverse engineering black markets. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, so the line says when she's not reverse engineering black markets. Let me give you one more. So this the fraudster also made a rap video. I'm going to play it for you guys quickly. We don't have to do the audio, but anyway, she did a rap video. So here it is. She's literally, the person stole 120K Bitcoin. This video is taking forever, so we don't even have to play it, but she made a rap video. The last thing I will highlight is this, is um, Aubrey Straubel, who does head of comms at Lolly, I think. She had a, she found something quite uh, quite hilarious, is uh, the, the female involved in this uh, money laundering. I think you guys are all from the UK, you appreciate it. Her, her pinned tweet is a Churchill quote. <laughs> you have enemies? Good. That means you stood for something in your life. So anyways, that's all I know about it. I think it's hilarious. I, I'll pass it off to you guys. My only question being, is this really a crypto story or is it just two people trying to launder money? That's what it sounds like to me. I mean, it's related, I guess. It's, it's still, la I mean, laundering could be for all sorts of things, but I, I guess it's related because of uh, it came from that hack, apparently. So... Um, again, I don't know if this is, is this 100% confirmed or is it still, do we still need to it's, say it's DOJ, it's DO, uh, the Department of Justice okay. confirmed. Seems so uh, let, let me throw it, let me throw it to Rick on this question. What is that, when you see that, there, uh, you know, 50,000 foot view, and you know how uh, critics of crypto are always looking Early. for a reason to knock it down. <clears throat> does this fall yeah. into the camp of like, oh, we told you crypto is uh, totally yeah. bad news. Okay. The, well... I have this kind of unifying theory that when you add zeros to a human being, they become more of who they already were. Okay. So like most people aren't even at zero, right? Most people have a negative net worth and that's the tragedy of some of the systems that are in place, right? Most people aren't actually ahead. If they were to get hit by a bus today, their net worth would be negative. <clears throat> I actually remember when I realized I'd roughly hit zero again and I was like, wow, I'm worth nothing. And so I've, what I've seen is, um, there's this fascinating thing that happens to people when they go from like zero to multiple zeros over time. And like you basically count the number of zeros divided by the number of years it took and you can kind of work out how insane they're going to go. So if you could become a billionaire in under one year, like that basically leads to complete insanity. And this is what leads to people doing things that make no sense on the face of it. But, um, and if someone could become a millionaire in a week, they will do something insane for that. Um, whereas the, the kind of admirable and most interesting people in the world, they usually become billionaires over decades. And like they're ready for it by that point. It's like pumping iron for years. <clears throat> so I'm always fascinated, not by how someone made their wealth, but how quickly it occurred and by what means. And, 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 and I think that when you have a sense of that, you get a sense of the person. You know, because Jack, you talked about this all last year. It keeps coming true. It's just the idea of like what these crazy crypto runups are doing to people is that their time frames now for how rich they can get, it just completely warps how much work they want to do, the type of projects they want to take on. Like you see yeah. this, when you see this, what are you thinking? Yeah, the, I mean, I haven't read enough about this story to know whether or not they're just laundering the money or they actually exploited the system and, and stole it. Is it, is it both? It sounds like they received the money from the hackers. The hackers were not in the DOJ's actual filing. Got so it. They were doing it. the laundering. Got it. Yeah, I think um, 
I mean, you, this is not your first gig in that world either, is it? Like they've been doing this for a while. It would seem like nobody's given them 3.4 billion on their first freelance money laundering gig. So <laughs> didn't find on Fiverr.com. Yeah, 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 Fiverr. Maybe I don't know. Maybe there's like it's they so blatant. They Gitcoin. They actually subscribed on Gitcoin and yeah. they uh, went <laughs> applied. <laughs> and for yeah, for people who don't know, Gitcoin is a is a workplace uh, that's kind of running partially on Ethereum. It was that. Uh, it was that outrageously straightforward on the on the bio written there. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a Craigslist ad or something. Anyone's got any? <laughs> but like outside of this specific example, yeah, there's like a huge <clears throat> amount of like psychological warping and a divorce between like making something and like receiving a reward for making something mm. and, you know, just participating in a market in a really... <clears throat> a very specific time and you know maybe you got lucky and got out at the right time but um yeah i don't think the repercussions of that are particularly positive uh when you're divorcing I think on the positive on the positive side you could say there's no worse place to launder money than yeah blockchains like you really are right going to get caught because mm. there is just this incredible indelible record forever and if you make one mistake with one address or one seed phrase or one commingling of IP addresses. Um, and this is another thing is it's not just address analysis. When you actually issue transactions to a blockchain, you're usually routing them through nodes that take records of your IP address. So you might have five different wallets, but in fewer and consensus, they know exactly what all your wallets are. And that's why I always say to people like your attempt at privacy is a waste of your time. It's an illusion. Everyone can figure out and anybody with any resources can figure it out in minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Rick, that idea, like, or that part of the narrative, it does still seem to be, I mean, particularly on the Bitcoin side, more of the like sales pitch or the USP is like, you can operate privately or there's, you know, some element of like, uh, removal from a financial system that can track you. But the opposite is true. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's totally unsolved problem. The, the ability to have auditability and total privacy, anyone who's honest and, in, and a researcher um, or is involved with operational security and tracking down terrorists who do make the mistake of using crypto will tell you, we just catch these people all the time. It's not difficult. And if you make one mistake, the data is always there to, to be connected. Um, so I think it's just a profoundly stupid thing for people to do. You know, people I know who, uh, you know, clearly are dodging taxes and people who are um, trying to set up their businesses in nefarious ways and get away with, you know, doing token liquidity and all this stuff. It just leaves a digital entrail forever. And, um, and the promise of zero knowledge cryptography has been there for a long time. But, you know, there's a reason that all this stuff is, is still very auditable and, and easy to inspect. And, you can either hire a research firm or go to some of the, um, the large block scanning security firms and they'll tell you exactly who people are. This is why in movies, they only want bags of cash. Yeah, they only gonna... want bags of cash, people. <laughs> Briefcase <laughs> or yeah. a full-on stack. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the counter argument which you all just mentioned there is that I think the surface level people think, oh, crypto, this thing from Silk Road days where they've read a few headlines and now you're realizing like, wait a minute, money laundering has been going on forever. This is not a new problem. Um, and obviously cash is used a lot of the time. I mean, Pablo Escobar was not using crypto, right? Like they were, they had <laughs> apartment buildings full of cash. 
Um, well, that's a joke. The money's just rotting away, right? Yeah, I mean, they literally used to, I don't know if you guys have read the book, but there's literally, like, the accountant would have to uh, write off, like, a certain percentage of their cash piles because rats would eat through the cash. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Um, yeah. Well, hold so, on. Yeah. Let, me, uh, let me read yeah. the actual money laundering techniques here because the, re the reason why I want to read these out <clears> is this is actually a this more is sophisticated not operation. Or not even <laughs> so this is from a DOJ file. So, I mean, this is not super sophisticated, but it's actually more sophisticated than what Bernie Madoff did, which literally pay in and out of his checking account. So um, this is the money laundering techniques. They set up online accounts with fake identities, standard, standard procedure. Uh, they set up programs that can make numerous auto transactions in short periods of time. I don't, I don't know what that does. Uh, deposit funds in dark net markets in order to cover up transactions. Does this sound about pretty standard? Mm. I mean, <laughs> I'm not I, asking. I, I was going to say, I feel I like, like you're teaming up there for something there, Trump. But, for, for but uh, yeah, so when I'm laundering billions, I don't do it that way personally. <laughs> um, no, fair enough, man. No, I just wanted to talk no, to you about technique. We don't have to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, so, so I mean, I mean, the I think... I'm, I'm, that's not an area that I'm an expert in, in terms of like analyzing the blockchain, but I do have several friends that, um, you know, sometimes I'll just go, yo, who do you think this person's addresses are? And they'll just come back with a list and you're like, how on earth did you figure all that out? And they'll be like, oh, well, that one's connected to that one, that one. And it's like a fun game. Like sometimes there's a few investors I really don't like, and I've been at cocktail parties and I'll just ping my boys who I know, who know this stuff. Be like, who do you think these addresses are? And I'll just start reading off a few of their addresses of like 0x742j. And they just start looking at you like, like this, like, you know, it's the worst. Also a secret hack. I'm just going to give a drop some alpha. If you want to get your ENS and someone's name squatting you, there's three levels. There's the super polite, hey, I'm going to send you 0.1 ETH as a hello and a thank you and I love you and I want to pay you. Then there's the offer them something that's really, really generous. And this I've done 90% of the time and it's gone really well. Then there's the, the DEFCON 4 is like, if it's for a famous person, you can say, look, this famous person is going to give you something money can't buy. You can have a call with them. They'll be so stoked. You should help them out. But DEFCON 5 is like, when you really want that ENS, just find their addresses and say, let me know if you want me to submit this to the IRS. And they give you that ENS oh straight away. <laughs> done, sold, over, it's done. Like that ENS moves across in minutes. Suddenly they're responding very fast. Not tax so, filing advice, not yeah, tax filing advice. Not. Exactly, it's just like work with an accountant yeah. to do your best to figure out the rat's nest and try your best. But most people are not being very honest with it. And God knows, I don't know how to calculate this stuff. I just asked my accountant to figure it out. But my point is, is that there are many ways to pull the lever on the blockchain and hiding stuff is really a bad idea on a system that has no mechanics for hiding. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. great. That's great. Great, great <laughs> transition to our next topic, which is all about ENS. So thanks for that, Rick. This is a story that's come out in the last week. So, again, we covered ENS in, in a past episode. If you're really interested, you can go and listen to that episode and what it is um, in detail. But high level it stands for is it ethereum naming service is that is that right and uh, essentially when you see this on twitter you see jackbutcher.eth rick.eth etc that is using something called ens and uh, pretty cool what they do but what happened over the last few days is one of the key guys there called brantley milligan uh, he's someone we've spoken to after our episode so we, we did actually speak to, i spoke to him on twitter straight after he offered to come on the show and um unfortunately what happened is some old 
tweet got resurfaced, I think from 2015 or 16. And there was kind of a lot of, I mean, I'll just read them out to be, to be fair uh, to his actual words. One of the, the first tweet that kind of got blown up was, homosexual acts are evil, transgenderism doesn't exist, abortion is murder, contraception is a perversion, so is masturbation and porn. Um, so obviously something that none of us would um, obviously stand behind is you know, terrible on many levels. Uh, but we're not really here to debate that today, you know, about the terrible levels of what he wrote. It was it's more about what has happened since then, because um, after that's kind of blown up, he has essentially been terminated from uh, True Names Limited. So Nick ETH on Twitter, who I know you guys have also spoken to in the past, said True Names Limited, the nonprofit that funds and organizes development of ENS domains, has terminated the contract of Brantley Milligan effective today. And uh, yeah, so this is more of a wider discussion. So I'll, I'll pass it over to you guys. First of all, when this came through, is there anything that came to your mind straight away? And uh, how do you guys think it's been dealt with? You instantly knew that guy was toast. That's definitely like... Yeah. I think the way, I mean, maybe the last year or so, nfts and that part of the ethereum community has like moved distinctly away from like the old like pseudonymous crypto culture underground you know um like cypherpunk or whatever you want to call it to like you know people launching projects under their own names people um building their identities around a ens address that contains their like government name all of the I think behavior and standards that are now expected in corporate culture or like pop culture in general apply here. Does that make sense? That, that's how I read it. It was just like, and I think what you see in the discussion after something like that comes out is the, basically the, like the butting of heads of those two sides of the argument. One, which is like, crypto web three, like accessibility, everyone welcome versus, you know, this is, I don't know if you want to call it a political slant, but more of a, like the majority of, you know, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase the second part. It's like, but it is this clash of cultures where there are certain things applied to the world of crypto that I, in the same way that this privacy discussion that we just had doesn't necessarily apply right it's like the, yeah. the kind of this like side narrative that people like to think is associated with this ecosystem but actually it's just a different layer of infrastructure and businesses conducted the same way it's expected to be conducted everywhere else at this point yeah rick and trung anything from you guys i'd love to hear rips rick's take here i think we could take one step back and just talk generally about twitter as a medium for expressing thoughts um because I've certainly stepped back from Twitter because I felt that um, there is a transition phase that goes from having 3K followers where it feels like family to 30K followers where it feels like a cacophony to heading towards 60,000 where you basically have um, a stadium in your pocket. And particularly if you're good at crafting tweets, it's not just a number of followers. You can very quickly get hundreds of thousands or millions of views. So, you know, there's something that I wrote on Twitter that um, indelicately expressed an opinion I have that has been informed from a lot of experience I have, which I've not shared online. Um, and it was a very poorly worded tweet. And, um, and I regret the way I wrote it. I don't regret the opinion and it won't change. 
Um, and and it and it got me into a lot of trouble with a lot of people I respect. <clears throat> and as I log back into Twitter to apologize for the way it was written and to clarify um, what happened, realized my account had been locked unless I deleted the tweet. Uh, and now in Bradley's case, his account was just fully shut down. So imagine the one time you need your audience the most, as in not want, but need it, right? You, you, you actually uh, need to be able to tell everyone, hey, like, if you feel that I've upset you, I want to come in with some more information, or I want to come in with a clarification or an apology or some context. That one moment, Twitter at that very moment shuts you out. And that's why I will no longer contribute to Dorsey's platform because at the one moment I didn't want my access to my audience, I needed it, they stuck this big delete button. And the delete button was a, a waste of time because the, the tweet had already been tweeted. Deleting is not gonna solve it. The ability to add context and add a reply to that would have been valuable. But I just suddenly realized that this is the exact thing that I'm fighting. That I, I just don't believe that some literally anonymous, not even pseudonymous, some literally anonymous person at Twitter can block my account unless I click delete on something that's been screen grabbed by three or four of the people who despise me in the community. And so I just want to talk generally about the two of my, uh, one of my friends, right, Cooper, Trooper, you know, he wrote something, I think, eight years ago that was very indelicately worded on Twitter. And Brantley, I believe the tweet was five, six years ago, which does not represent how he communicates either in person or in Twitter today. And so I, I do agree that if someone is persistently pushing hate, right, day in, day out, that there could be consequences. But when the cause of that, that kind of consternation is a historical record from many years ago on Twitter, when somebody had no followers, you know, the context that's missing on what many of these people have written as 18 followers and, you know, basically thought Twitter was private, right? And now they have a stadium of attention. And I, if anybody can honestly tell me everything they've ever said in private messages online to their friends wouldn't at some point get them the consternation of a stadium of opinion, I will be amazed because I've heard people who are the highest of high minds say things that are the lowest of lows when they're not in themselves. And so, you know, this, whether it's Brantley or Cooper or anyone else, uh, I, what I would say is that Twitter as a medium optimizes for ire. Okay, it is optimizing for rage. It is optimizing for finding the person we cancel today. And, you know, obviously canceling Heather and, and Ilya Lichtenstein, that's super fun, right? We can laugh at them. We can go, you idiots, you morons. Everyone's going to agree stealing four and a half billion is like just evil. And so that's the kind of like hanging in the castle where we gut the gizzards of the person. We all agree. Doesn't matter any walk of life. You know what what your background is we all agree these people should be incinerated but when you have people who've made statements in the past that, that can upset people in the future then we have to be really careful about that because i'm a different man from who i was 10 years ago i'm a different man from my teenage self and each 10 years i adapt and evolve and i, I want there to be space online for that evolution and to have your account rug pulled at the very second you wish to kind of clarify or communicate with people, I think is, um, it just adds so much fuel to a fire that's already burning red hot. So that's how I feel about it. And that's why I've stepped back from Twitter and focused on my emails because I have a conversation with my email subscribers in a way I don't have with Twitter.
Actually, could you talk about that? Like, how much more do you prefer email writing to Twitter interactions? Yeah. So I, I think Twitter is a really good way to build notoriety and wealth and to get secrets, right? So I think it's amazing when you have nothing and you're trying to get something, right? But once you've got like an awareness of who you are, it, it turns out those people will follow you almost anywhere. Like the people who actually care about you, they'll follow you from Discord to Discord to Discord. They'll follow you onto Substack because they are valued like the vast majority of your contributions, right? Has everything that I've written online been correct? Absolutely not. Has everything I've written been an accurate reflection of what I've meant to say? No, because I've written a lot. But if people are interested in what you're currently thinking, um, I think they'll come anywhere. And, and, yeah. and I found that. So uh, what, I, what I say is I'm not against anyone using Twitter. I'm just saying be conscious of how it changes from 3K to 30K to 300K. And I've seen what it does to people's minds. And I decided it's time for me to pause on the Twitter front and focus on long form. Uh, yeah, the one point you brought up that really stuck out to me is just the idea is like, literally, I can tell you right now, if everybody in the world were to reveal their personal WhatsApp group chat, it's game over. Everyone's right. getting canceled. Right. <laughs> Everyone's getting canceled. Yeah. Bro, how do you know how? Um, let me ask you, how many times a week you get a thing is like, yo, I don't think I can send this on Twitter. It's like, really <laughs> right. Some people find yeah. the memes like, oh, I can't post this. Literally just, I can't post this. I get a dozen of them a day. It's like, I can't post this. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. I get yeah. canceled. And Everyone will get canceled. Right. And and I, I, I do think that. Um, I, I've tasted the edges of that, but I've seen friends go through the full gamut of it and, and all of these yeah. things. And, and it, it's like, um, you need to think carefully about what is the most value you can bring to the world. Like, as a mental model, if your net worth is lower than your Twitter account, you seriously need to rethink your life. Like you, cause you're not actually capitalizing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm yeah, close to the line. <laughs> that, that's deep. <laughs> that is deep, yo. That is yeah, that's deep. And a lot of people on Twitter, yeah. I think that's true. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> yo, so, yo, the tea is being spilt today. <laughs> Damn. All right. The only thing I will add, and I think you, you made uh, fair points there. And I 100% agree that all of us are not perfect. We've all said things we regret. Uh, if you look at any of our personal chats, we talk differently with in private than we do publicly. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think we can all agree with, you know, the last conversation we had last week was about Joe Rogan. It's a similar world, but obviously completely different context around what was said and, um, you know, the way, it's, the scale of it, obviously, as well. Um, the only thing I will say, and again, I don't know Brantley personally. I don't know him as a person. From the people I know who have interacted with him, he seems to be... A nice enough guy but i don't that doesn't really mean much i don't really know him personally so i will say he had a chance to kind of reframe or at least you know kind of address it and straight after he kind of wrote on twitter he said looks like i've got my first mob nice to see some people finally read the first word of my bio which is catholic i love you all i'm going to keep working on web3 right so again it's not to say i don't think that's that's a completely unreasonable thing to also tweet out and there's a slippery slope of apologizing, right? Because when you start apologizing, people can keep piling on. Well, look at Rogan. They, 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 he's Rogan. apologized. It's not enough. They, yeah, they, they, it's they not don't enough. want him. It's not about him apologizing anymore, right? Yeah. Again, to your point, it's not the totally different scales. But Rogan is not about apologizing. They but, want him gone. Yeah, he can apologize want, a million times. You want to be super clear. Brantley does believe these things. Th that's right, kind of what right, I'm saying. Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, like, and that's not going to change. 
and That's and you know yeah. members of my family have been molested by catholics you know so like let's just say that and like i don't like catholicism because it leads to a set of thoughts that suppress sexuality among their um among the people who proselytize the bible that's probably the kind of thing that could get me cancelled by Catholic Twitter. But I'm happy to say it, and I would say it to Brantley's face. I don't like your system of thinking. And the great, the irony of this is like ENS can't be cancelled, and Brantley can't be cancelled once social media moves to ENS, and it's all going to revolve around ENS. I have some strong opinions about Catholicism. He has some strong opinions about the way in which people live their lives and homosexuals and things like that. Those opinions may or may not change, but... If there's anything I've learned from studying the history of open source software is that people who absolutely despise each other can still work together to build amazing things. Almost everyone in Linux says they hate Linus Torvalds and the way he talks to people, but they all still use it. So ultimately, you've got to start to recognize the difference between force you can apply and force that is wasted energy. And like, um, I'm not commenting specifically on the Brantley situation because it's not something that I've been involved in anymore. I'm not, I've only heard about it through friends from Twitter. I'm right. not on Twitter anymore. But, you know, th- th- there is a certain irony to trying to skewer the man who will build a protocol that can be used by anyone who's got an internet connection and enough gas to pay the transaction. Um, and, and whether he's correct or not in his thinking, which I think many of us think we don't think, that is a view that is shared by literally billions of people. Yeah. Yeah. Literally billions of people subscribe to it. So not being able to air it seems strange to me. Wait, so could we actually pull back? Because uh, I know our original thought about this, and we talked in our chats, was about the key man risk. Is there yeah. any key man risk with ENS? Or is it because of the nature it's being built? There is no key man risk. Like, could you talk about some of that? Well, let's quickly explain what key man risk is as well for some who's never heard it. Okay, so key man Often risk the, is uh, if there's a go business on, venture or an organization that is dependent on a single individual. That Like the Joe Rogan podcast has key man risk. Yeah, <laughs> there's absolutely. no Joe Rogan. There's no Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah. And, and that, then I think our, in the past, people have used on a, that's literally just a show named after him. Or that's 10 out of 10 key man risk. Then there's like a hybrid, which is Steve Jobs. Yeah, um, you know, so people are always debated when he dies or moves on, what's going to happen. Yeah, Richard Branson, you know, those sort of leaders that are the face of a company. Actually, Tesla is a great example. There's some Tesla with Elon, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, and I guess the point with with Brantley is he's not an Elon Musk, right? But he is, you know, his name is attached to a lot of this stuff on a smaller scale. I think the the wider we can move on from Brantley specifically and just say these sorts of protocols, these sorts of things that are being built. I think when we first saw this, the thing I thought was, regardless of me not agreeing with this person's point of view, I don't think there's, I I don't like that there's people in the world that believe those things, but I know, like you said, a billion people plus do. Um, The the question is more like if you're someone, in 2022, if he'd done that with a bunch of people following him, the, the thought process to even put something like that out there that is part of the key man risk to say someone who has the ability to write something like that, you know, is, is a bit of a loose cannon or whatever you want to call it. Right. So, so it's not even about the opinion in this case, I'm trying to separate that out from the act of putting something online, which when you're building for lots of people, right, that is going to become an issue. Granted, he wrote this many years ago before he was probably even working on anything like this. So, uh, yeah, I guess from you guys, is there anything else on the key man risk that you, you guys think about that? The only other thing I was going to say, we've brought this stat up a few times, is the 7% of Americans with a Twitter account, 50% of the 7% have ever tweeted, 
most of those have only tweeted once. So like the echo chamber or the response to something in the really concentrated feedback loop of Twitter is not often indicative of the shared reality at scale. Um, so like if a protocol like this works and continues to work, this will be, you know, a blip on the radar among a group of people that are just like laser focus on this tiny part of the, you know, eventual market size for something yeah. like this. So yeah. that'd be my closing I think thought. There's, there's two things I would say as well is um, on the kind of um, significant point, so much of Ethereum's culture is about writing code that might outlive yourself. You know, the, the building systems that might adapt and certainly don't rely on a key man. It's almost the entire culture is at this stage of Ethereum, if Vitalik was run over by a bus, you know, heaven forbid, um, not that I believe there's a heaven, uh, ironically, given the topic <laughs> of the conversation, but but say Vitalik was killed, Ethereum would carry on. It's totally, the key man risk has been reduced to a very small amount. He's coordinating a lot of the innovation, but much of the innovation is coming from way outside of his brain. I think that that speaks to a difference between a company and a protocol, right? Where a company is top down and that it, there are literally key men, right? CEO, CSO, C, CDO, like, you know, CTO, right? Whereas a protocol may be started by someone, but it's much more like a marathon that builds, where it starts off with a few people running and then suddenly it has thousands. And, and a protocol feels much more like that. And I think new leaders would emerge in Vitalik's place in a way that in companies they don't, because it's just built into the ecosystem. You know, I, I view myself as focusing intensely on design, but I almost have no interaction with Vitalik because I don't need it because the protocol just exists whether he exists or not. Um, and so I do think that is a difference. And, and ENS is getting one of its first tests. It, the, the top delegate is Brantley. If you have delegated your ENS to Brantley and you disagree with his opinion, you can now politically express that by sliding it onto a community that you do identify with. And so I think it's a really interesting test of the governance process and the mechanisms of this protocol. Yeah, that's a great point, man. Yeah, I think that was another thing that happened like a day or two after there was a proposal put out there and you could see the delegations moving. Like, I don't know exactly where you, I guess on the blockchain, you can see that, right? So um, it was pretty cool to see that in, in real time um and i don't know where it's netted out now it sounds like he's just not working on it anymore i guess his delegation votes have been moved to other people by this point i don't know where that kind of netted out can you yeah, so do you guys know how many people are involved in delegation can you kind of break that down rick like how many individuals are actually being allotted these kind of votes so i believe it's quite high for a protocol because it was allocated to everybody who had some ens and crucially, they came up with a good interface for delegation. So when you claimed your ENS, you were given an option to delegate, and Brantley was one of the top people. And because everybody knows him in the community, a lot of people delegated to him. So he had accumulated a lot of kind of political power in the ENS system, um, and that is being drained. So if you, if you really want to express your opinion and you have ever had an ENS record you know, from the last few years, go into the interface and express that political opinion you know, with capital. Um, and, and with you know system, and that is what I think is so exciting about Ethereum is it's giving us this bedrock for expressing revealed preferences with our money in a, in a way that just hasn't existed before. Yeah, that's a great point. I have one, uh, one last question for Rick, and maybe it's going to be a bit long-winded, but I know you wrote about this before, Rick, the, um, the kind of difference between like waiting on a system that exists to accept the thing you're building. So like 
the where this comes from is like ENS existed as a I think it was a nonprofit. You said Bilal, like TL something. Uh, it says True Names Limited. True Names uh, Limited that funds and organizes development of ENS. Yeah, which which I guess that's where like you have to kind of do the song and dance and create the entity and something has to exist in order to set it or, or does it i guess that's my question is like these things have to interface with like governmental um requirements already exist like a yeah and and what or a, yeah because it the press release or press release or the announcement was kind of issued from the holding company versus the like hey the protocol has decided that this as you phrased it well rick like political power has been drained from this individual based on their you know, the community's distaste for their behavior. So it's an open-ended question. I'm just curious, like, do you think people will begin to like launch things that don't, or maybe they already are, like launch things that don't interface with the real world in that way? Because that to me feels like it has, you know, some of this is connected to like the old way of doing things in a lot, in a lot of senses. Totally. I think that you need to draw the distinction between things that can live entirely on Ethereum things that do need a presence in the real world and Ethereum and things that really just belong in the real world and you shouldn't put on a blockchain in the, in the first place. And that's really a mental model that I'm not sure I'm correct on, but I can give you kind of some insight into how I think about it. So for example, with what I'm doing with Balance, we need to submit an app to the app store. So we're going to need a company to interface with Apple. There's just no two ways about it. A DAO is never submitting an app. So that's going on. However, we're also going to have revenue from on-chain integrations, interactions, and a whole bunch of other uh, interesting things and, and from selling NFTs and just everything. There's going to be a lot of on-chain revenue and we need an entity to control that that isn't just my wallet. So we are actually having a, an on-chain entity with Ethereum. So there's going to be a relationship between a C-Corp in Delaware and a kind of a DAO in, in, on Ethereum. In the case of ENS, I want to really emphasize that these people carried on building this thing with a shoestring budget for years and survived on grants from Ethereum when nobody was interested in it. Now it seems obvious that it should be cool that everybody should be able to register an indelible kind of namespace that isn't controlled by the DNS system or by Gmail as a provider or Facebook as the kind of owner of Instagram. But in, in you know, four or five years ago, that was not obvious. And I, I want to kind of, whatever people judge Nick Johnson for, you know, on this specific decision, I really want to zoom out and weigh the whole of Nick Johnson's decision-making ability and just say, what a fantastic human being who's built an incredible service we all use and birthed a protocol out of a company. And in, in many cases, many protocols are birthed out of a company. Ethereum was both birthed out of some kind of shim foundation that the, the Swiss were willing to kind of wrap their legal uh, maestros around. And, and, you know, many of these companies are like issue SAFs where they go, we may or may not do a token in the future, possibly, which is total horseshit. Everyone's doing a token. Everyone likes jets. Everyone's doing a token. It's just, we all know it. Okay. Like, you know, Everyone likes jets. <laughs> you know we all know what's going on. Um, like, and it's just so, and that's another thing we can get to is just the way these things are financed. Right. Cause that goes very much into the, into the system. But, but, but I, I, I want to say that we're in this kind of intermediary phase where we don't even have legal recognition for these systems in the first place. And there's a little bit of it going on in Wyoming, but those people have a kind of PDF level understanding of what's going on. They're not in the weeds of this stuff. And, and so I, I think that we're just, we're just super early and, and whatever method somebody uses to honestly finance and try and give birth to some community piece of infrastructure, I'm all for it. My whole thing is just, if you have a hundred times more money than, than like any of the, you know, than, than you need, or if you make money and the people who invest in your project lose money, 
that's where I, I feel a deep sense of sadness and responsibility. And, and, you know, I've certainly been involved in the creation of projects where I think the, the public valuation they went out at was way too high. And it, it upset me because it meant that the common man was getting wrecked. Okay. And then, but then there's a, there's a company and then there's private investors and there's equity and there's tokens and there's promise of future and all this mixed muddling stuff. But what it really comes down to is this is a new medium for controlling capital and giving code control of capital and giving people control of capital. And we're just figuring this stuff out. There's just all kinds of experiments. But what I do admire about the ENS team and Nick Johnson's leadership, whether we agree that he should have removed Brantley or not, what I do really admire is just the overall contribution he's made to the Ethereum community and the sheer grit it took to carry on building this thing from home for years when nobody cared. That's yes, a very well put. Great answer. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, Rick. All right, mate. That was fantastic. Let's move on to the next one on Polygon because I know this is something you definitely know more than we do. So if you said a PDF <laughs> level of understanding, I would say ours is between a tweet and a whisper of understanding. Wait, of hold on. Can we, can we have Rick tease out? When you say PDF understand, you're literally saying some legislator in Wyoming read a three-page white paper, and then that's their understanding of the problem. No, if, they, if they made it to a white paper, that would be extraordinary. Oh, yeah. I'm talking <laughs> about when Press you're release. like... <laughs> Yeah, I'm talking about like when one of your staffers sends you an email with a PDF that you can print out and like, <laughs> this is what we're voting on. I mean, this this is not like an insult and to the to the kind of legislators in Wyoming. It's just generally politicians yeah, are hard. just doing their best to deal with so much fucking information that they they have right. to uh, they That's have the to get they can summarize do. for it. But yeah. but but the, the problem is is that leads to enormous gap between the regulation and the actual reality of the technology. Yeah, fair enough. So uh, to Bilal's point, we have a tweet level understanding of this polygon deal <laughs> so uh so 450 million is this right for polygon so rick could you tell us what polygon is your yeah. uh understand I, 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 you've alluded to you did uh, you do know the founders so we'd love to hear all that yeah so I've, I've really enjoyed watching their story from afar so there's three key points i want to highlight firstly it was going to eth india in 2018 and they were obsessed with affordability in ethereum because Ethereum was already too expensive for Indians to participate in. So they viscerally felt the pain that many Americans feel now, where it's just L1 is not for them. And so JD Kalani and his co-founder, and I hope I've pronounced that name correct. I must admit, I do not have the other co-founder's name correct in my head, so I don't want to mispronounce it. But the founders of Polygon, they understood the problem that Ethereum is going to get too expensive for the regular person very quickly. Um, and, and they focused on this problem. Now, they went through hell. I mean, I was a bit confused by their token launch. I think that Matic was a bit crazy, and then it dumped, and it went up, and gyration. They accumulated a lot of stuff. They got rid of a lot of them. But then they met this guy, and I believe his name is pronounced Mihailo, and he had an idea about how to do scalability as a side chain, as a, as a system that wasn't secured by Ethereum, but used a lot of the Ethereum technology just as a kind of release valve on the pressure of Ethereum systems, just somewhere to put the transactions that wasn't fully secured in the same way that Ethereum was, but was secure enough to keep the ball rolling and keep stuff moving. And you could bridge back and forth between these things. And so what Polygon did is they then, uh, I believe they partnered with this guy. They all worked together extremely closely and they launched a working network that allows you to get some of the pressure off Ethereum and onto another chain that uses all the same development tools. And, and then... Um, and that's when things really changed for them. It just started to skyrocket. Now, the Matic token mooned, and they suddenly found themselves with a multi-hundred million dollar treasury with an organization that was spread from Bangalore all over the world 
with just crazy amounts of resources, like basically unlimited resources, which is, is, is insane. And so they went and bought every single zero knowledge team who was for sale. And so that means people who are really brilliant with a special branch of cryptography called ZK or zero knowledge uh, cryptography. It's something where I have a PDF level of understanding. I couldn't even look at the maths if I tried. I mean, if you put a gun to my head, I couldn't construct <laughs> one of these uh, snarks. So my, my, um, my, my, my kind of uh, take on this is that was when they collided with Sequoia, right? And, and Sequoia have been out of the game for a long time. They did not understand what was going on for a long time because they forget what it's like to be poor. And that's their biggest blind spot with all these venture capitalists. And it's one of my biggest issues with Silicon Valley, biggest issues with rich crypto investors, biggest issues with melts who've sold an NFT and think they're God, is they forget <laughs> what it's like to be poor or to be unable to be investing because you're an unaccredited investor. People who are just under the unaccreditation laws, they're not poor, they're usually extremely wealthy, but they're still blocked from investing. So that's the thread I've been pulling on for a long time. But Sequoia realized they were wrong. They're like, right, protocols are a new system, tokens are a new form of compensation. This is mopping up talent, like a speed at which we've never seen. And we're gonna start making big bets. And I, there's three huge investments Sequoia is about to close, which I've heard about on the grapevine. And all I can say is they're making moves and they understand the problem now. Are they moving uh, with the speed that they're moving? They're going to be in the game. Like this is like in your- massively in the game. Okay. You can't watch Paradigm make more money than God and think, uh, oh, we're just an LP in Paradigm. They've realized like, screw Paradigm, we're back. Okay, here we go. I mean, my theory is that the token has completely blown the water out of the stock option. So right before the token came along, the stock option was the highest form of compensation you could see. But let's be honest, stock options, are, uh, we've talked about it before on your podcast, they're a rigged game mostly. And tokens, while they can be uh, obfuscated in lots of ways, at least they're liquid. And so, you know, if you don't like the founder, you can dump. And there's just a lot of people who prefer that as a form of compensation. Well, Rick, so we did talk about this exactly, I think two, three episodes ago. So I'd love for yeah. you to address kind of the negative we brought up. And I think Jack was the main was like, you can just jump from project to project because of how quickly the liquidity on tokens are, right? Does that take away the incentive to build long-term? Just from what you've seen? If, and- if, if you structure it badly, it absolutely does. So one of the things, you know, we didn't get everything right when we launched this project, Faye and Tribe, like a, a year and a half ago. One of the things we definitely got right is the vesting schedule, okay. which was, it was basically inspired by Snapchat, but it, we extended it even longer. So Snapchat has a five-year back-weighted vesting schedule. So your fifth year at Snapchat, you're absolutely balling out, right? Your first year at Snapchat, you're getting a little bit of the upside, but nothing much. And we actually extended it to six years for the whole team who are earning Tribe. And that is what everyone who's done a sober analysis of that project has realized is, wow, this team are actually incentivized to make this work over half a decade because their sixth year is the money-making year. And I, I really admire them for like going through with that because that's not the case in most token projects. And so what I always like to do is say to people, just ask the founders, when do you get paid? There's nothing wrong with being open about it. Like just... I get paid in year two or year three or year five, right? And if they say year six, back up the dump truck because they're not going anywhere. So just because <laughs> yeah. they're liquid doesn't mean you need to give them all of them at once. You can, you know, a lot of companies, they do flat four-year schedules with a one-year yeah. cliff. And, and uh, I experienced falling off that cliff. And it was not very fun. <laughs> but like, uh, but not, like even, not even making it to the cliff. Not even, yeah, exactly. I didn't, get, I didn't even get off the cliff. No, it was just thrown, cast aside like a dodo. Um, and, and so my, my, my point is, is that you want to look at the flow of liquidity, the flow of opportunity, 
and see, because yeah, if you do um, 25% each for the first four years and it's always liquid, people will jump and hop around. But that's not what smart people do. Smart people in Ethereum are incentive engineers and smart people who build companies are incentive engineers. And you've got to think about how you engineer these incentives. So there's a flexible table for you to work with and tokens are just malleable as, as websites. So just go at it and program interesting things. Actually, the word. So now, now that I, I did listen to your uh, framing of it, it, the hardest part of being a startup employee especially for a private company that doesn't have clear paths to exits. It's just mm. like, you just have no idea, right? At least no. with these token economics, they are liquid, yeah. but you said you can still structure it where they are incented to stay, but they at least yeah. know they can dump. Dude, I've seen I've seen people dump their employer's token on chain from their ENS. And you're like, oh, well, that project can't be going very well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like you can That's see crazy. it all on chain. It's not difficult. If you set up a few alerts, you can just see what your friends are up to. And you can just give them a text and be like, yeah, man, how's it going? Like, having a bad day? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's only so, but, but more deeply, employee illiquidity is criminal. Okay, yeah. it's not fair. Okay, so let's take Stripe, the best example in the world. That thing is going to be used by 100 million businesses. And when it goes out the door at a 300 billion valuation, it's going to be owned by 3,000 people. That's insane. That's crazy. Like Ethereum's the opposite, where we're going to be owned by many more people that use it for quite some time. And that's one of Ethereum's strengths is we spread the wealth. And what I'm tired of with Sequoia and Stripe and startups and all these things is just how concentrated the wealth has to be. You have to be here in this 50 square mile patch of land, which I look out over, to basically win. You don't have to do that with Ethereum. You just have to join an ethical team that hasn't done a token, and then you can buy a jet. I promise you. <laughs> it's the jet money still coming. Yeah, the jet money. It, it is, but it's the ethical part that's hard, unfortunately, in this yeah. ecosystem. Okay. So can I, can I just add uh, the valuation here, right? Because they raised $450 million. Uh, I think the market cap of just the token itself is 20 billion. I, I don't know how we can compare these directly to companies because it might not be a, a fair comparison. But just to give a sense of scale, Pinterest, I'm just pulling this up. You know, a legit company has been around for a long time. It's $17.5 billion market cap. So I'm curious on your opinion on, you know, of course, Pinterest, very web too. Back, you know, it's been around for a long time, but it's a legitimate business. There's, there's users and advertisers that gained from their platform. Polygon um, is one of many players in this space, right? And uh, I, I think they're probably the leading one, uh, like, you know, basically the scalability solution. Uh, I know you called it a side chain, which is slightly different to some of the other players, like there's Optimism, Zika, Rollups, and I, or a bunch of stuff, uh, Arbitrum, that I don't fully understand. Um, but regardless of that, for the end user, they're really there to make ethereum cheaper faster for the end user right so to me they're they're competitors to to a user like me using metamask uh, on my on my browser so i'm curious from your point of view especially knowing the ethereum space pretty well like how do they you know um compare to the other other players in the space are they really going to be worth that amount or or do you think that they can have their lunch and buy some of the other other solutions yeah, so um, I think there's two frames that took me a long time to understand that I might share, and maybe your audience will find it useful. It's first of all, um, it's the technology frame uh, as it as it kind of relates to the internet. So I think the correct analogy is Linux plus JavaScript. Now, is Linux the best server you can write? Absolutely not. Is JavaScript the best language you could write? 
Definitely not. Even the creator of JavaScript hates JavaScript, right? Which just speaks volumes. But they were there at the right time for the inflection point, right? The corner term. Okay, Linux was there with the Apache web server and JavaScript was there with kind of uh, React web apps and, and, and things that were interactive. And, and jQuery and that whole stuff. And there were these kind of two inflection points of the internet where we needed a server architecture and then we needed a front-end architecture. And you know, perhaps people who are advanced engineers would disagree with me, but, but I think those are the two massive inflection points of the internet, which is website, web app, bang, suddenly we get loads of usage and off we go. And, and it feels to me, like, and this is just my reading of history and I'd be welcome to anyone to update me who's actually lived through it, I'm just reading. Um, uh, it feels to me like Ethereum is going through the same thing where you have the Ethereum virtual machine, which is what describes the rules of a smart contract and how it can run. And that got out the door and we got basic smart contracts going. And then you've got kind of solidity, which is the language. And then you're kind of coupling it with the scaling systems. And, and it's like the, the one, two horse. You need a blockchain to be out there where you can write more expressive code on it than, than Bitcoin. And Ethereum's come along and over almost six years um, it's proven itself to have some scripting abilities. And then you need the, the scalability and the language just to kind of turn the corner and every developer to work on it. And so my understanding is that like, if you look at Ethereum virtual machine rather than Ethereum, the, 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 the race is already over. I mean, just the, the EVM has just so dominated everybody else, whether it's Cosmos's architecture, whether it's Solana's architecture, whether it's anyone else, the amount of brain power and the amount of transactions and the amount of capital that is flowing into EVM plus Solidity is just enormous. And um, you know, I, I listen every day almost to the Daily Guai from from Anthony Sassano, and I feel it's given me uh, a very rich tapestry on the ecosystem. Despite him being obviously extremely biased around Polygon and Ethereum, which he discloses totally upfront, I think he has a very kind of analytical eye on. What's going on with Ethereum's virtual machine? And for those who don't know, that's what EVM stands for. So for me, the Ethereum virtual machine is the simplest to develop before, the broadest developer adoption, and got the most users and the most money. If any of those numbers start to change, I'll start to worry. And so that's kind of where I focus is just what's the ecosystem like? And is the Ethereum virtual machine increasing its dominance? And if so, that's exciting. And so I, I think, oh, go, oh, go ahead, Bilal. I don't have a I don't have a question specifically. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say uh, as a follow up to that, but specifically with Polygon and the other you know solutions that are out there to address that you know particular yeah. problem of high fees, etc. Well, you can see it in the money they're dropping, right? They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on teams who have the knowledge of zero knowledge, which is uh, pretty ironic. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're, <laughs> these people, everybody knows that someone is going to crack the zero knowledge protocol that's secured on Ethereum. So right now there's side chains, optimistic rollups, and then explorations in zero knowledge systems. So Aztec Protocols one, um, ZK Sync is another, and then, then Polygon has bought four teams, I believe, for multiple hundreds of millions of dollars in their Matic token to, to, to crack this. So um, if this works, it basically gives us enormous scalability where we just kind of audit billions of transactions down into zero knowledge proofs or a few of them, and we secure them on the Ethereum base chain. That's my like PDF level understanding as a designer, yeah. right? I'm just Got doing it. my best to get it. Um, and, and, and so you can see that with the money everyone's spending, right? Optimistic rollups like uh, Arbitrum and, and Optimism Alive. Polygon has you know, um, uh, the POS chain. 
Um, but everybody is eyeing and gunning for that zero knowledge prize because that is the holy grail. I believe that all the zero knowledge cryptographers in Ethereum, are those are the kinds of people that Vitalik will respond to instantly, right? He's so interested in their progress and what they're doing. And you can see it on ETH research, anything zero knowledge that seems like it might work, he's right on it responding, not within you know days, I mean, within minutes he's responding. Uh, whereas everything else, he's just got to let it fly. So that's my reading of the of the ecosystem. And I think about this a lot because I, I'm building another wallet and I, I want to understand the ecosystem so I don't get rug pulled by a big technology change. I think that's right. actually the perfect, because uh, I actually did want to hear more. Yeah. We never mentioned at the beginning with the listeners, but so you mentioned the word balance. Could you tell us what balance is, uh, what you're doing with it? And then it's it's relationship to Apple. And then we can go into the journey I love fest because I want to get into that. <laughs> Yeah, so um, if, if you haven't heard me before, I, I used to run a, a project called Balance uh, and it had a web app that allowed you to view all of your balances in Ethereum. And so this was actually innovation at the time. You didn't have to add tokens like you do with MetaMask. You could just click MetaMask and it would just show you all of your token balances. Um, we worked with a bunch of data providers to scrub data and show you. And this web app was actually extremely popular in the Ethereum ecosystem. We also released something called Wallet Connect, which was um, which was a protocol uh, which allows you to create mobile dApps to, to mobile web apps and, and mobile web apps to mobile phones. And Pedro spun that out into its own project and did a fantastic job with that. Um, and so uh, my contributions to the Ethereum ecosystem have always been at the interface layer. From the day I met Gavin Wood and Vitalik in 2014, I poked around a little bit with design back then. I came back in 2017 to help more. And Balance was the kind of summary of that work. But, um, you know, I had, a, I had a division in my project uh, in how we should take things forward. And the fork of that became Rainbow. So what you use as Rainbow is something I half designed uh, with, with Christian Baroni, who is an incredible designer who I just had an incredible disagreement with about how to take the project forward. And so um, this so is Rainbow Wallet, right? For Rainbow Wallet. Yeah. So Rainbow is a fork of Balance. Um, and, and so I took kind of two years off and helped a lot of other teams. But I always had this idea of like, what would it take to make a great mobile wallet? And I, I just didn't have the answer, honestly. I like, if you sat me down and pointed a gun at my head, I would not be able to tell you how to make a great mobile wallet. And because the experience was so bad, like a lot of us have desktop privilege, but if you actually force yourself and try to use dApps on your phone, if you don't want to throw your phone out the window, then I don't think you're a normal <laughs> human being. And it's just terrible. And so this all changed three months ago when two things happened. First of all, Safari for iOS, and I mean this on the iPhone, allowed you to add extensions to it. So that allows you to extend the Safari web browser. This is a huge initiative Apple has been working on for three years because doing extensions on mobile well is really hard. They've been on Android for a while. They're all crap, right? On, on Apple, they've actually fixed it because they, they focus on battery life, on security, on privacy, and they've got all of that right. The interface still needs a little work, but they've got the core tenets of it right. And when I used the one password Safari iOS extension on my iPhone on the 28th of September, I remember this like it's no, I just I realized, wow, every wallet is gonna have one of these, you know, and 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 we need an extension for an Ethereum wallet. And I started asking all of my friends who work on wallets, like, where's your extension? And they hadn't shipped one, and I was just confused. And eventually I got so frustrated, I just sat down with an engineer uh, called Dimonar Nesterov, and we just basically took MetaMask, shoved it inside the butt of Safari <laughs> and like got MetaMask working inside Safari on your phone. And, and this thing just took off. Like it just, people, whenever they started using it, stopped using their mobile wallets. And over the time I was starting to decide like, am I going to get back in the wallet game? Cause it's really hard. Uh, and there's not, it's very hard to figure out the correct way to make money without getting all your incentives screwed up. And then just January of this year, I was like, right, I need to stop like researching and just start committing. And I was like, right, balance is back. We're doing an iPhone wallet. 
And I'm going to try and ship something really great for the Ethereum community and hope that that could be my contribution. So my first thought of this is like, it's amazing that you're going all in. That's the first one. And I know you've written extensively about going all in. The other one was, uh, why wouldn't Apple just do this? Yeah, well, I mean, Apple do lots of things and I do hope they do a crypto wallet, um, but Apple doesn't ship the best calendar. It doesn't ship the best notes application. It doesn't ship the best video, video editor. It, it doesn't even ship the best phone app. I mean, it doesn't ship the best contacts app. It doesn't ship the best team chat app. It doesn't ch ship the best security manager because yeah. all of these teams are just three to four person, you know, get something done right. for our iPhone business teams, right? They're not actually innovators. They're doing their best to create an interface that will work for billions of people. Um, and, and the thing is, is I think that the, the team that will do this well should have a deep technological understanding of the constraints of Ethereum and a really mature sense of the opportunities inside the Apple ecosystem where you can get approved because this is a dance with Apple. You, you, you can get banned. And if you don't know how to interact with the App Store team and you just ship whatever you want, there is censorship and you've got to accept that. So it requires a kind of familiarity with what you can do on Ethereum and a kind of understanding of, of how to pitch things to Apple. And I think right. I'm not saying I'm an expert in either, but perhaps at the overlap, I've got some ideas. And there's something specific to Apple, right? You've written about Tim Cook himself his ideas around privacy. Uh, yeah. You mentioned at the beginning, Apple, I mean, iPhone's obviously is the greatest distribution machine ever. So yeah. like what, so these are, so Safari is used by how many hundreds of millions of people? Like this is your thinking of like the distribution, right? So uh, on mobile, many countries, Safari is the dominant browser. That's what people don't realize. On okay. desktop, they lost, okay? And they, they've accepted that. They, they still ship a desktop app. It's growing a little bit, but they lost the war. They are not losing the war on mobile. If you look at the number of dollars that flow through e-commerce, most of it originates with a Safari uh, interaction. Oh. If you look at, um, I think that 65% of mobile browsing in the US is Safari. Uh, and like it's, 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 it's a browser that's ignored by developers at their peril. And there is no Ethereum wallet for Safari that works well on the desktop or mobile. And it was only possible to do it on mobile three months ago. So I'll give all the wallets a pass. But this is just wide open for the taking. And I just realized someone's going to do it. And I just want it to be great. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Did you guys have any questions around the wallet before we get yeah. some I have love fest? <laughs> no, I think this I think when we spoke a few days ago, you said, you know, like what you just mentioned there, that people think of Chrome obviously because of desktop. Um and and then what you just said there is dollars, you know, obviously like iPhone users we know are more valuable, you know, across the world, not just in the US, in terms yeah. of like what they spend, their willingness to spend, what they spend in apps, like across the board we've seen those metrics. Um, yeah, I guess. And don't the, forget the iPod Touch, right? That's a 199 device that can give kids superpowers who who are in yeah. families that are really, really hurting. That thing runs iOS 15.4 incredibly well. It runs our wallet incredibly well. And then don't forget financing, right? Financing mm. is one of the ways Apple is giving a lot of carriers around the world massive balance sheet safety, so they can finance millions and millions of iPhones. And so iOS is actually growing again for two reasons. The cameras just got so much better and the chips are just so much better. They're blowing Android devices out of the water. Now, I'm not saying I don't want Android to have great Ethereum wallets. I'm just saying I'm not that person. Yeah. And I think no. that um, I, I would love to fund anyone who copies my strategy and does an Android wallet. If, in fact, if anyone's listening to this and you're thinking of doing an open source Android wallet for Ethereum, 
ping me because I'd love to fund you. But my focus is on where Apple and Ethereum intersect because I think that it could lead to a hardware change. And that's the big opportunity, right? Mm, love it. Actually, actually, I just saw the news too. Apple's releasing a cheap phone, iPhone SE3, the first 5G wow. cheap phone. I think I just heard that. Wow. Did they say the price point, Trung? I think it says uh, 400, three, 400. Yeah, and that's oh, cheap. That's- that's incredible. For iPhone, that's way less. Yeah, yeah, that's really cheap. That's it. Well, I want to order point, one right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our software, we've optimized it so it will even work on an iPod Touch. So I'm certain it's going to work on that device. And I haven't even heard about that till today. So so my, my focus is just on the environment around security and care, right? I mean, like, and there's no company that demonstrates care or security more than them. And and we have to play nice with somebody in order to make Ethereum work. You can't just run roughshod over everything. And all the teams that did an ICO to try and build a new phone, where are they now? Where is their hardware? I mean, it's just a disaster. So, so I think that um, the opportunity here is to have a relationship with Cupertino, not to hate them. It's to talk to them about crypto, not to de- deride them. It's to get interfaces with the, the, the both the App Store team, the developer relations, and eventually the kind of C-suite level people because they want to talk to someone who's not going to rug pull them or try and trick them. They want to talk to teams who are building with their platforms. They want to work with partners who use Swift, who use the latest APIs, who demonstrate the capabilities of the iPhone. But the real thing this comes down to is if they adapt the secure enclave to work with the cryptography in wallets, and they add a special signature, which is known as the ECDSA signature, uh, as a kind of API endpoint inside the secure enclave system, which would require you know, captains of industry and Apple and a whole bunch of people to come around and develop a good API for that. If they do that, everyone's walking around with a hardware wallet in their pocket and the whole world changes again. Mm. Love it, man. Rick, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to circle back to. You said 2014, I think you said, meeting Vitalik and Gavin, did you say? And then going Yeah, I met them in a hacker house. I want to hear this. So, And in 2017, (laughs) you worked on early Ethereum stuff. So I think you're self-funding a lot of this yourself, right? The the current, uh, what you're working on. Uh, So, yeah, so uh, Vitalik, uh, I did just about a month or two's work on design interfaces. Um, and, and then two and a half years later, Vitalik sent me 10,000 ETH when it was worth under a buck. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh, wait, was this just Incredible. like, was, did you do work pro bono or did you do? Yeah. It- so I literally just said to, I saw Gavin in a hacker house. I think this was uh, around the time of the WhatsApp acquisition, if I remember correctly. And he was like, you know, man, the world is so centralized into Facebook and we've got to re-decentralize the internet. And I was like, I have no idea what this guy's saying, but I'd heard about Ethereum a couple of times. I went up to him and he invited me to this Skype group. And honestly, if I could NFT my access to this Skype group, because it's like the oest of OGs. I mean, I don't really belong there. I was just like, hey guys, I need some design. And so in sure that much of the material they used to pitch Ethereum, they used my three or four designs just to kind of explain Amazing. it. And then, and then I was like, guys, I've run out of money. I'm like broke from my last project I did. And they were like, come to Zug. I'm sure things will work out. And I was like, I'm sorry, I've got to earn some like, some actual money some and they were like, we'll give you some ETH in the future. And then kindly there's a guy um, who got in touch with me through Twitter. I mean, one of the benefits of Twitter, he goes, Hey man, we owe you some ETH. And I had no idea like what ETH was valued at or what they owed me. Wow. And then an email chain went on for six months. And then finally Vitalik paid me uh, I, I, because it, during that time it started mooning to like eight bucks. And I instantly sold like a third. To eight like, bucks, Jesus Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were eight X yeah. up, man. Uh, no, yeah, dude, I was, I, I was, no, because it was about 33 cents I was allocated at. So technically I was 27 X up and I was like, woo, 
Oh, yeah. Yo, PJ. Sold, Here comes the PJ. A, yeah, probably sold a good chunk of it, which is retarded. But you don't, you know. I'm so I'm sure it's led to uh, other homes. And um, but but what I mean is that to me gave me a taste of token compensation before anybody else had that. Like, I mean, there aren't many people who got a little sniff of that that ETH, and and then were like, oh my goodness, this is what it's like to own exponential equity in a system. And that's what I keep seeing again and again and again, whether it's NFTs, tokens, DeFi, joinings, people get a sniff of their first 100x and they lose their minds. And I did for a little bit. And then you start to go, okay, how do I repeat this? Why did this happen? How can I do it again? Rick, I like exponential equity. Have you have you coined that officially? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that's probably like um, probably some uh, like Stanford professor who's never owned any equity in his life would say something. Like that. <laughs> he, has PDF, he has a PDF understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he, he literally has a PDF understanding. His entire course <laughs> is on PDF. <laughs> Wait, Jack. I was like, actually, any... actually, you remember? I, went, I applied to Oxford, and I uh, and the college I went to, they slid over a piece of paper about Apple, and I was like. Yeah. So my economics interview, I was like, I'm going to crush this. This is amazing. This is the one thing I know something about. And I ended up insulting the uh, the professor. So that's why I, didn't, I think <laughs> that, I didn't get into it. Sounds on brand, man. Yeah, very on yeah, brand. Yeah, yeah. I, I try Jack, not to. I try to like find people I agree with. It's just hard. Wait, but, so yeah. Jack, did you have your your master of distribution? How are you liking uh, how are you liking Rick's strategy here? Phenomenal, phenomenal. <laughs> I hope you're successful, Rick. Well, I think that the best thing is, is that everything we're doing is open source. And so even if I'm not successful and this thing fails and I lose even more money on this and I've lost thousands and thousands of ETH on building balance, I can't even, I don't even want to count it because it makes me feel ill. Um, if, even if we're not successful uh, in the direct sense of the app, and I do think we're going to be this time, I know that the people will continue the baton and like they will learn from us and remix us. And many of the ideas we pushed forward in balance and with Wallet Connect and, and other patterns for exchanges that we work with, um, you know, those patterns have made their way into lots of apps. So I, I just, I feel intensely grateful to Vitalik and the crew of people around him who never quit, right? I, I gave up. I was like, in 2014, I was like, you want to build Web3? What the hell are you talking about? I was like, I'm, I'm out. Like, and then I, what sucked me back in was having a little bit of the system and that, that grew the 10, and grew and grew. Brought you back <laughs> yeah. <in. laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. And, and like, you know, when that went to $10, I was like, this just, this is, I'm, I'm stoked. Like my, mm. my life has changed. That's life-changing money, man, of course. Yeah. It was yeah. life-changing money. And like, don't ever knock like that first win you have. It just, it 100%. makes you feel so good because you're like, oh my God, I don't need to worry about the next month's rent i can yeah just take a step back and this is another thing i'll say is like everyone focuses on getting rich how about just getting 12 months in the bank how about that yeah, like, yeah. so many yeah, people man, don't have 12 months cash and what do you know when you have a crazy down market or you have you know a, a, an abusive partner or you have someone fire you having that cash just sat there dude, the level of confidence it gives you you just feel like fuck you yeah. i can just chill <laughs> on the couch for nine months I could just be scratching my knees and I could be absolutely fine. Okay. And, and that's why I always have cash on hand because I've learned the lesson of how insane you go if you don't have it. Like, you know, it just drives you mad. So such a my great, big thing is, great point. is what's your runway? And it, like, be honest. I and mean, by runway, I don't mean like what assets could you sell? But I mean, how much have you got in like physical cash in a safe and, and like debit card cash that could pay your expenses? I mean, it's under 12 months. I don't think you can think as clearly as people who do have that. Um, and, and everyone's like, oh, I've got to leverage this or optimize that. If you're a creative person, your goal is to create. And if you're worrying about rent or worrying about food or worrying about this, you can't create. So 
That's why I ask every crypto person. And the number of people in Silicon Valley, right, who are earning 300K and they have less than 12 months cash in the bank, you're just like, it's insane. It's crazy. <laughs> Amen, brother. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, uh, one other thing I was just going to ask about that is kind of like when you knew, I mean, you, you mentioned like that 10X or whatever you got. But when did you first say, oh, I'm going to back myself, not just to leave and work on something cool, but actually like start something myself? Because that's normally quite a big change, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I backed myself the second I was fired from being a waiter after two weeks. So, you know, and then I come home and I can't go traveling and my dad laughed at me. And, and I appreciate my dad for doing that because he was just like, well, you're not going to South Africa, are you? And so, you know, I backed myself many times, but I've also been had my back against the wall many times, you know, so you can, you can get in the fight and you can get almost knocked out multiple times. And I'm extremely grateful for my family for always being there and supporting me. Not like they never just like gave me money, but the big thing they did is I always knew there was a home I could go to and reset. So I think that you always need to understand when you see an entrepreneurial story, anyone who says they're a self-made man, they can jog on because there's always a set of people who are supporting them. And yeah. those people should be recognized and appreciated. And like when I, the reason I have the confidence to go and do balance again is because I've found a partner who supports me and she's, she's everything to me. And, and so much of the care she gives me, I'm trying to like give to this project. And, and so when you say back yourself, there's, there's some of it, right? There's a bit where you've got to go and it is on you. But there's also like, who do you have who's got your back? And the way I like to think about it is it's not top down for me, like a CEO where I'm going to control everyone. It's not bottom up like Vitalik where it's like, well, if you want to work on it, that's cool, I guess. For me, it, I feel like if I was to go to war, like I feel like I could be with a team of soldiers and I feel like I could commit to them and say, I will run through that door first and I would just seriously appreciate it if you come in after me, otherwise I'm dead. And that to me, as I go into this, you know, second attempt at balance is how I'm trying to make the whole team feel that, that I'm willing to take like it all on the channel, willing to do everything that, that I, I hope I can kind of um, encourage them to do as well. Um, so as much as it is me backing myself, so much of it has been people believing that this is a worthwhile project and the, the contributors who co contributed to the open source project, the people who've joined the discord, we've got a crowdfunding going and like people have, have, have come together to support us and we're all going forward together. So it's never just me. It's never just one man. It's always a team effort. And I hope this team effort renders some really interesting results for the Ethereum community. Yeah, man. Love what it. Is the, what's the business model for balance? Like, how will you be making money? <clears throat> yeah, well, I can tell you how it went down last time is that when you do a wallet, basically every great founder wants to talk to you. So I got, I, you know, I helped uh, Uniswap get started with Hayden Adams. I was involved in the graph. I helped Nexus Mutual get off the ground. Um, four or five others that I can, can mention. And uh, I don't mean this to gloat. I just mean that they wanted to talk to wallet providers and interface creators. And I did my best to help those people. Because and some of them were kind enough. Right? Is that the main yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, because they just understood that I understood like a little bit about Ethereum and a little bit about design. By no means was I an expert in design or an expert in design. Ethereum, but but figuring out that constraint set, it just requires a bit of time. Like I always say, I'm not brighter than anyone in the Ethereum community. I've just been asking the question, why the hell do you need a blockchain for a little longer than most? And and so the business model is, I mean, first of all, just look at MetaMask, right? Just one feature that generates cash is doing them between one to $3 million a day of revenue. And that's exchanging. But exchanging is the obvious thing. I think the way cooler thing is to start doing partnerships with DAOs, doing certain custom interfaces, doing integrations, and they allocate a treasury uh, you know, amount to you. Uh, and this is kind of what I experienced with Balance before is personally, I was getting advised, I was able to advise um, projects we needed for the wallet. 
And that rendered me huge results, like way more than I could have made from Ether. I made from like participating and helping teams with their designs. Um, and, and, and that's what we'll do again, but we'll do it as a team where we will be focusing on certain protocols, certain places, certain, there's only so much energy we have. And certainly the teams that want to partner with us and reward us for that energy are going to you know, be incentivizing us to be more involved. And so we're starting to see uh, that wallets are getting massive valuations. My crypto was just acquired. Phantom just raised a hundred million. You know, I think wallets are starting to be appropriately valued and um, we have a much lower valuation than that. And I, I feel good about that because it gives us the room to grow. So ultimately you will have end users, right? You will have attention. Yeah. And you can yeah, to, to be very clear, yeah. services. <clears throat> yeah. And, and that's really the high level strategy, which I'm kind okay. of sharing there on a very deep level. If human beings are using your software to create transactions, whether yeah. that's Stripe or Balance or any company, there's always ways to make money, right? As yeah. long as you're at the intersection of money and transactions and humans, there's always ways to make money. I'm much more worried about can we do it well and can it do it securely? Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, I, uh, um, I got no more questions on balance. I'm ready for joining I Love Fest unless I'll, you guys got some questions. Yeah, I was just going to, but let's definitely get to that. The last thing I wanted to bring up before we move on to Johnny Ive. Rick, you mentioned it earlier a little bit. I just want to go into it a little bit more is the accredited investor laws. I know we talked about this a few days ago as well. Um, you mentioned the reason I bring this up is because, you know, you worked for, you know, almost no money or whatever it was. And then you got given 10,000 ETH, which in today's valuation is worth like $30 million. I'm sure you didn't hold on to all of that. But just yeah, if someone's, it got their someone's got a calculator out, I'm trying to save you five <laughs> seconds on that. Totally. Right. So, yeah, no, so no. that obviously is life changing money. But I know you've also invested in other projects early. And again, whatever you're happy to share on this side. Totally. You, yeah. you have very strong opinions on accredited investor laws, yeah. which the summary is, uh, I think it's $1 million or $1.2 million of net worth or more yeah. than 250000 $300,000. And you can now do an exam, but you've got to get it verified by a bank or something. It's yeah. crazy. So there's this law. So it really stops yeah. people, like regular people being able to invest in certain types of you know, early stage inv startup investments uh, and a few yeah. other things. So yeah, yeah tell so, us a bit more about that. So one of the, 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 the lucky perspectives I have, which I think is somewhat unique, is I've been at the place where you could get the best stock option compensation, which is Stripe. Unfortunately, I got fired, but you know, I was there and I got the, I got the agreement and I have the cap table and I have like a whole bunch of data right. that I probably shouldn't have. Right. And I've also been at Ethereum where you could get one of the best crypto assets you could have. Right. That one, thankfully, you know, they didn't have a cliff of one year and my two or three months or whatever it was or a few weeks rendered me, you know, a, a fantastic sum of ETH for which I'm so grateful. And yeah, I definitely didn't hold all of it and, and dumped a lot along the way to, to fund salaries. Um, but um, but let's let's go back to the important point here because I'm not worried about kind of talking about any success I've had. I'm more thinking through how can other people think about this and 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 let's just forget stock options because I don't want to go on a run. What I want to want to do is talk about the opportunities available to young people who can earn tasteful tokens. And so by earning tasteful tokens, I think that's the highest opportunity for anybody in the world economy out there today. And so what does a tasteful token look like? It should be a team that cares about building a great product. It should be launched in a way that isn't just inviting whales in. It should be a valuation that is fair. And the last point, and this is the most controversial one, is if it has a lot of private funding and then it's going to do some public dumping, 
just steer well clear of it because I've seen the guts of these deals over the last two years of being a semi-retired angel investor. And it's just awful. All of these people will say to you at the beginning, oh, worry about the regulators and you need to be careful and don't do a token immediately because they're going, but they'll say that at the beginning to get their angel check in, right? The seed valuation. And then the second that there's a sniff of a token that they can dump on the public, do they talk about regulators? Hell no. They just talk about, oh, how can we do a liquidity mining program or um, you know, how can we do a distribution or a fair drop? And it's all horseshit because the company has a huge treasury and they start dumping it as soon as possible. So, yeah, they didn't technically raise investment from people, but no, they're not getting a fair shout at like the way the cap table works. So you're seeing the likes of these giant crypto funds convince founders at the earliest stage, there's huge regulatory risk. You absolutely have to work with us because the US were going on. Well, unlike any of these funds and unlike any of these founders, I've actually gone and talked to the SEC. I went to Hester Pierce and I had a chat with her and I said, look, tell me what you want to see really. And she goes, I want to see American innovation that is not a scam, right? And that's what they're crying out for. So what would that look like? That would look like raising sensible sums of money both from accredited and unaccredited investors so that you can have highly advanced individuals as well as community support at valuations that increase. And what irritates me is that the ICO boom scarred us too much, right? ICOs were too much. They were all pump and all dump. And, and, and so we went the other way where it all went private, private funding, public dumping. And I hate both sides of it, right? I hate the ICO era. I hate the private funding era. What I want are more founders to have the balls to do a public sale. And I don't care if you're in the US or not, just be honest. Okay. And so now I've put my chips where, where I'm standing right now. Okay. So three things I've already done an equity crowdfunding for balance three years ago. You can look into it. Wefunder.com slash balance. It nearly killed me with the admin and just the sheer costs. So we raised 1.2 million, one of the fastest funding rounds ever. But it cost me nearly 150K of legal fees, design, pain, wasted time, engineering effort. It was enormously wasteful. Now I've launched for something that's called a mirror campaign, which all runs on Ethereum. And you're going to get a token called LFG for the memes. Now, the token, will it have any value? Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. But like you can see my values as a person. So if you value me, maybe you want to bet on me. If you like me, you should buy it. If you don't, you should dump it. And, and my point is, is that... I'm willing to go out there and sail close to the regulatory wind. Why? For two reasons. About half the people who are investing are accredited, so I don't need to worry about that. And we're getting their accreditation and it's totally fine. And about half the people investing are unaccredited. And so that's just the same as doing it on an equity crowdfunding platform, except I'm topping it up with another 5 million. So we're going to raise about 9 to 10 million to, to fund this so that it's not just me. Because I, I can fund this as much as I can, but that's a limited sum. But what I want to get back to is not just me, but, but, but you as someone who can allocate your time. You've got four options, right? You can get remunerated in dollars, which is you're going to get wrecked, right? 7% inflation. You can get restricted stock units from Google and Facebook, and that's a life if you want it. And it can be great if you're trying to provide for a family or send money back home. Then there's stock options, which is either nearly vertically up or vertically down. And that's another gamble. And there's tokens where it's just so undefined, you can almost encode the compensation yourself. And we don't know how this is all going to play out, but we do know one thing is that the people who are getting tokens are getting jets and the people who are getting dollars are getting wrecked. And I think that just shows, <laughs> you know, what the difference is. It's just 
And again, I, I'm not talking about people who trade on Binance. I'm talking about people who create tokens and get them out the door. But I've seen the sausage being made behind the door. I've seen what these funds do. They scare founders at the beginning, and then they encourage founders to dump on you as soon as they smell liquidity. And it's disgusting. Rick, when give us a prediction here. When will tokens be the dominant form of capital compensation relative to equity? Give us a timeline. Well, one frame I like to think about is, is the number of people whose principal employer is a protocol, right? So Bitcoin, we have like a few hundred miners, right? And then Ethereum, we have a lot more miners and now some stakers. And then DeFi, we had tons of people who the principal employer was a smart contract, right? So that expanded it to nearly millions of people. And I think about applications that actually do stuff in the real world, that's going to get to tens of millions of people. And then applications that we all use in our daily lives, if we're all given a piece of the upside... That's where um, I wouldn't think of it in terms of like engineers and their salary compensation, as, as interesting as that is. I think when do we move the category of compensation to code? And when do we move the set of people that we include in that compensation from not just investors, not just early employees, not just kind of constituent parties that you think should be included, but the people who use these services. And I think we all feel that when Instagram changes the algorithm, we have no say in it. And that when Facebook changes the, the kind of political system and we have no say in it. And when you know Twitter just rug pulls your account from beneath you, we all feel what it's like when the stockholders are separated from the users. And we know that's wrong. And the fusion of that is just beginning to get explored in really interesting and crucially tasteful ways. Like I'm talking about teams that are not trying to dump on you. I'm talking about teams that are trying to build and try and grow and trying to build amazing services, not morons who are trying to dump tokens on you so they can get you know a jet. And I, I use the jet term flippantly, but there's nothing more enraging than when you see someone steal a jet. If they earn a jet, I love it. If they steal a jet, it's lame. Okay, that's amazing. Love it, man. Um, Rick, we're going to run out of time soon, so let's get on to the love fest. I know you've got <laughs> a huge book in the corner. Let me let me zoom on you here. Wait a minute. Yeah, let's show the, the, uh, the watchers. Yeah. And... <laughs> well, I've, got, I've got two books. I've got two books. So I've got Tell the one that everybody should read, and this is not just about... Let me get it for you. This is the one everyone should skim, right? Because it's just, it's amazing. It's not just about Johnny Ive, even though that's the kind of subject. It's about the team that he gathered around him. And it's, for the it's, people who aren't, uh, who aren't watching, what's it called? Because uh, It's just the, the Johnny Ive, the genius behind Apple's greatest products. But actually, the book does a really good job of honoring like the team that, that he, he kind of assembled and how he joined Apple and how he almost left. And he was very close to walking out the door. And from what I understand, Steve was wandering around the company just with his head in his hands, thinking this is over, this is a disaster. And he went in the design studio, saw some of the objects that, that Johnny and his team were crafting. And that was when he got fired up, left the design studio, said, I'll be back, and just laid waste to Apple. He just gutted the whole company. He got rid of everyone who got in Johnny and his team's way. And so what I love is that this is a story about a man who assembled a team to build objects for everyone, right? And so if you think about this as the kind of accessible document that, that, that everybody should read, in particular, chapter seven, which is one page 159 about their studio, is just incredibly inspiring because he's a product of a British design education. And then like so many Brits who I admire, got frustrated with the entrepreneurial ecosystem in, the, in Britain and then left. I mean, look at three of us. We've all, we've all not built our influence by being in Britain. 
Um, but then the other book, and this one is a bit more of a meme book because there's not many of them. Um, when I think towards the end of his tenure there as a full-time designer, uh, the whole team, Love it. instead of looking forward, they look back and they built this book, which is just, it's an incredible set of photographs, both of like the objects they made, but crucially like, the processes they use to make them, right? So like, so, you know, yeah. it's very easy to look at that That's beautiful, excited. isn't that crazy? Incredible. Like, and, 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 and like, so what you realize is they often came up with the design for the object in weeks. I mean, really weeks they had the form, but then it's like, how do you make, you know, a million of them? Um, and this book is a kind of testament to that. And, and I love it. Um, there's not, unfortunately they discontinued it after he left Apple, which I wonder if was a little bit of a slight, um, and, uh, it, it is a little bit, um, you know, backwards looking, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that when you have arguably 30 of the most productive individuals in history gathering together and completely bending capitalism to their will. I mean, Apple is a 30,000 person organization that serves kind of 30 designers and they don't talk to anyone. They don't entertain the opinions of anyone. They share ideas together. And, and this book, which I really do recommend to everyone, although Johnny I biography really, captures the productivity of that design studio and their team. I, I think we're going to have to get you back to do a full like 90 minute love fest, but can you tell the <laughs> listeners and the watchers three things about Joni Ive, your favorite three things more, but let's call it three that you love about Joni Ive. Some quick hitters here. Yeah. Um, I admire the fact that, you know, he's a product of a British design education um, and that like his dad actually designed the design education in the UK. So his oh. son was his first oh, student. Wow. And so, yeah, so that. Johnny Ives' father actually architected a design education, the entrails of which I even experienced uh, in the UK. And that's one of the things we do really well in the UK is like design and technology and, and getting people trained for that thorough craft. So I think that's a real testament to one of the positives of Britain. You know, as much as I I'm um, frustrated by some parts of the UK. I do love uh, a lot of the aspects of it. And, and also just a, a testament to his relationship with his father. I think that part's fantastic. And then I admire the grit to stay at Apple during the dark years, right? It's so easy to look at the graceful release of the iPod and just forget that Apple was on death's door run by complete morons with absolutely no sense of vision and that they had like 70 product lines and it was just crazy. And so to have the grit to stay there because of one experience with a Macintosh, right? That's really what sustained him is I love the Mac so much. I'm going to move to California and meet the people who made it. And then I'm going to stay at the company that made it for most of my life. So that, that's what I'm at. And then the third thing is, you know, however much the ego may have grown, however much um, the veil of politeness that he puts on in all of these interviews you can see on YouTube, there is a fury to this man. And it, at the bottom of his website, right, which is Love From, which is all a nice brand, if you look at the bottom of it, it says Love and Fury. Oh. And, and I think that sums him up extremely well, where he loves humanity, but he's absolutely furious about how shit the built environment is. And I think that really sums him up um and that that's one of the many reasons i admire him and also the team that he built um yeah love that can man. we address two things that we, i think we can all agree here charging the apple pencil in the <laughs> ipad okay address this okay this needs to be addressed 
Please address that item, and I got one more afterwards. You are limited. The most meaningful thing I could say, and you dropped me with a pencil. Yeah. There. I, I love the juxtaposition. I want to talk about the limits. I know the most Brun's like, like hey, the now. mouse. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, Rick Hero. I'm going Hero. back to my book. I'm going back to my book. I'm done. I'm over it. <laughs> okay. The way the, 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 the there are limits to genius. I think this is lesson four. Oh, of Something course. Okay. Happened. Look, there's Something been happened. so many. Pro- Look, the Mac Pro was an absolute disaster, and they have a kind of ode to it in there, right? That yeah. that that trash can was literally it almost ruined Apple's relationship with creators because yeah. when you have Pro in the name, you need professional grade tools, and so yeah, there've been loads of missteps Apple has made. But what I admire about them is they usually on stage laugh at them when they have a new product to show you. Yeah. So when they like introduce the, the, the Jack, right? The, totally. And like when they introduce the new Mac, uh, MacBook Pros and, and Mac Pros, right? That was Apple saying sorry to almost everyone yeah. who started buying yeah. Windows computers. And they laughed at themselves on stage. They're like, yeah, we actually remembered what Pro meant. And, and like, I admire that irreverence, but they're not going to do it until they've got something to sell you, right? They're right. not going to... They're not going to acknowledge the problems until they've actually been able to sell you a new solution. So, yeah, the pro line was a disaster for half a decade and, and made me feel very um, hurt, actually, as a, as a supporter of the company. But now they've come back with, with M1 Pro Max, with a, a whole set of tools and, and, and with um, just an unbelievable like lineup for professionals like us, right? We make our living through these objects, so we need fast objects. And so... Do they get everything right? Absolutely not. But I always view, like just we were talking, talking earlier, you want to weigh the career and a contribution yeah, of a person. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, 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 and there's no way you can weigh them and find them lacking, in my opinion. Guys, I have the boogie to pick up my kid, but if Jack, you're a design guy. If you want to hit up Rick for some cues, I would love to hear them. Uh, I'm listening afterwards. <laughs> yeah, thanks, um, Ron. Thanks for hanging around. Rick, we'll thank you so much, jump man. Jump on for a little bit more. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you guys stay on. Cheers, Ron. Um, yeah, Jack. What about you, mate? Is there anything I know? Rick, the, uh, the yeah, most a beautiful. I, I haven't. Re- I haven't so. read the, that book. I think Rick. Obviously, you have an intimate knowledge of Ives' career. And the one milestone I remember that I'm most curious about was when they involved him in the iOS development. Or the was that was that purely a? Um... Uh, he hated. He hated skeuomorphism. And he, 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 that's why he got um, Scott Forstall fired. As soon as Steve Jobs died, Scott Forstall's days were numbered. And they actually document that in um, one of the final chapters. So, yeah, he despised the way iOS looked and, uh, and, and kind of alluded to that in a couple of interviews. Yes, it's like um, to put all of that love and energy into an object that the only way people experience it is this, you know, the digital layer of it is so incredibly compromised amazing that they built all of those things with that like under that circumstance for so long and then yeah you know finally got their got a little crowbar into that side of things yeah and, and that comes across in the book that this the fury does come across he's got a lot of people fired from apple because in the end he can just say it's me or them and he doesn't use that often i don't think but he definitely has used it a bunch of times to get rid of um, you know, Scott Forstall, I think uh, the guy who built Nest, um, re- really smart fellow as well, who was at General Magic in the early days. Oh, and that's another thing I'd love your audience to check out and whack in the show notes or something. General Magic is an incredible documentary about the first spin out of Apple that built an iPhone that almost kind of 
sorry, a, a smartphone that competed with the Newton. It's an incredible documentary about the history of Silicon Valley and nice. and really how ideas percolate through Silicon Valley over time. Nice, man. So I guess my last question would be like, on the software side, are there designers or teams of designers that you admire most? The thing that upsets me is the lack of acknowledgement of what algorithms are doing to our children. You know, I really think that we haven't paid attention at all to the idea that people who think all birds is fashion and Soylent is food are writing the <laughs> algorithms that control our minds. That's hilarious. It's hilarious, but it's also very, <laughs> it's very, very it's terrifying real yeah. and because true, yeah. When we had our minds manipulated by the New York Times, we knew the editor, right? We could look into the editor. I could go to the editor's home and look at what time they woke up. I could figure out the editor. I have no idea who wrote the algorithm that loads the Instagram post or loads the Facebook post or loads the Twitter post into my mind. Yeah. And not, and they don't even know either. Like if I ask around, who are the algorithm people? Like seriously, try and find them on LinkedIn. Try and find them through your friends. They're anonymous. They're literally anonymous because they're being paid so much money and they remove themselves from the internet. And meanwhile, they manipulate all of us with the internet. I want to know who these people are. I want to drive to their homes and just see what time they wake up in the morning. <laughs> I want to understand these people. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious. I, like the people that write these algorithms, I've never met them. I want to know who I've never met them at any yeah, yeah. Silicon Valley party. I've been in and out, in and out for a decade yeah. and I've got no idea who wrote the algorithms that controlled Twitter, which infected my mind and enabled me to do amazing things for five years. So I guess what I would say is as much as I can admire people who do software, I think you have to look down into the algorithms and you have to look down into the the hardware to really understand from the hardware up what the hell mm. is going on and so the teams i admire generally today are those that are building tools to empower people that are open source because i think what we've learned in history if you look at you know any history of software is that if nobody open sources anything you end up with one company winning everything. Mm -hmm. um, but if there are willing the people who are willing to forfeit fortune for contribution and that's what everybody who built the Linux and Apache ecosystem did. None of them wanted to be Microsoft engineers and make a lot of money. All of them wanted to make a system for humanity. Um, I think that's amazing. But what the great thing is now is that open source has 100 business models you can experiment with through tokens. And if you're just willing to experiment tastefully, um, you can actually not only contribute amazing open source engineering and code, but you can also make a lot of money doing it, which, which means we can actually win the recruiting war this time. So my big thing is, is I admire teams who, who do tasteful tokens. I admire teams who do open source work. Uh, and I admire teams who genuinely wish to make a contribution to society, not to execute some kind of trade or algorithm or kind of exploit in human behavior to, to make a profit. Awesome. One final question. Um, I'd just love to hear you opine on the, the kind of design gap in crypto generally and you know how you wound up there and i think there's just uh there's a lot of people who are super talented but maybe intim intimidated by the technical side of crypto and it sounds like you kind of fell into it from you know a non-technical or technically native place yeah and just love to hear your thoughts on that 
Yeah, sure. I've actually tried to solve this with our current website, and it's not perfect by any means, but balance.io has 12 verbs on it. And the whole message is stop trading, start using. There's no designer who, if they went through those 12 distributed applications or dApps, wouldn't have ideas about how to make them better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I want people to stop focusing on the speculation and start focusing on the creation. Stop focusing on the money and start focusing on the verbs and the usage. And so I think if you're intimidated, my suggestion is to just go use dApps with a desktop wallet like MetaMask. Go use dApps on your phone and try not to get angry. And just write down ideas for how to improve them and then work backwards from there. Maybe you'll find a team that will listen to you. You can join their Discord, get involved. There's so much opportunity because Ethereum is this kind of ethereal digital material that takes a little bit of time to get familiar with. Mm -hmm. But one way you can get familiar with it instantly is to use it. And then the next thing I encourage, and this is something that a vanishingly small number of people have done, is put a meaningful sum of money into a smart contract using a hardware wallet and MetaMask. And by meaningful, I mean, if you lost it, you would really be upset. You should be upset. Like, like I, I mean, I put two thirds of everything I had into the maker smart contracts. So you can imagine the incentive I had to learn about that project, use right, yeah. that project, contribute to that project, know the people who did it. And so often I'm talking to investors and uh, young people and uh, people with ideas who just don't use this stuff. Like they have a bit of ETH. They've read about dApps on Twitter, but they don't use it. And we all know what the difference between someone who's used something and who hasn't. And I feel it's 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 just a bit lazy. So, so in, in to, to kind of reduce that laziness, I've just linked to 12 dApps that I love on my own website, balance.io. Go and try them out. Are they all perfect? No. Could they all do with some more design help? Yes. Is there loads of ideas that could improve them? Of course. But awesome. one critical thing, they've shipped something and it's exciting. That's great advice, man. Thank you so much. Love it, man. Yeah, yeah great cool. way to wrap it up. I will say the last question I have for you, Bob, since there's three Brits left on, on the mic. <laughs> so we've just got to do a quick fire round. One thing that you do miss from the UK and one thing that you love in the US versus the UK. So basically a yeah. positive thing from each side. And I will go first while you're thinking. It doesn't have to be that serious. I, I mean, I will say actually, this first part is semi-serious. Being home in the UK for Christmas, like I'm very blessed to live here. I love the US for many things. It's not a perfect place for sure. Um, but one thing, operating i got bitten by a dog in uh november right i didn't actually talk about i told uh, jack and trunk but um and it was a bit of a crazy situation it was in the middle of the street and i was like oh my god it's terrible and just that moment i had to go and operate in the healthcare system here and i was like oh my god what i don't know how much it's gonna cost i don't know who i'm even supposed to go see and like i just got the bill for it this week right and i paid for it whatever but like that thing, I will say, as much as the NHS in the UK is not perfect, like the oh, fact yeah. that I know well, I don't have to like shell out, a, whip out a credit card to get my leg looked at, like that yeah. that feeling That's is it. something I, I do miss. And then- Yeah, my father is a eye surgeon and just actually oh, wow. retired last week. Uh, um, and, and my mother was a nurse. So I really admire the National Health Service and the contribution we've made because- it's one of those things where it's not a market, right? When you get bitten by a dog, you don't go, oh, let me compare opportunities, right? Let me think <laughs> yeah, about yeah. where I'm going to go get healed. <laughs> I have a freaking hole in my leg. So it's actually not a functioning market. So it's one of the things where when you dial capitalism to 11 in America, it just 
creates these these crazy externalities and an alternative incentives where if you look at the number of doctors in America, it's linear number of administrators, it's vertical. And that just speaks volumes. Um, And so it's one of the ways where capitalism doesn't quite work. The problem is because America is so big, it's hard to do. It's easy to do in the UK to have fewer people. The governance is easier. Um, But yeah, I mean, I've watched what my parents have contributed to the national health service with great admiration and, and yeah, I, 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 I love what they've done and, and, and admire them very much. Um, and, and I think that that is something that we all miss when we, when we, when we um, yeah. become immigrants in the U.S. Absolutely, man. But, the, but the kind of flip side of that is, good Lord, I love capitalism here. I mean, yeah. just people that, get That was going to be my answer. Done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the business opportunity, I, I think capitalism is mm. quite a broad phrase. Obviously, we're all capitalists here, but just uh, yeah. we've all been able to, in our own ways, make something of ourselves because of the upside of America. And I, I will, yeah. there's a guy I, I met here, a British guy called Josh White. He was on my other podcast, Creator Lab, a long time ago. He sold mm. three companies for $700 million, really successful guy. Wow. And he told me the difference is when you move here, you can, you can just generally like ping someone with an opportunity and the percentage of people that are at least open to it versus closed Amazing. off is that, that tiny percentage difference multiplies and i found that time and time again in everything i've done like literally pick like me and jack do this podcast together it started because i dm'd him saying i really like your work there's no expectations mm. i wasn't trying to do anything i was just like, oh it's kind of cool work i don't even know who this person is that has multiplied into a friendship, into a podcast, into lots totally. of other things. And, and, so. and in that way, we've all sacrificed part of what made us British to kind of be mm. more American, right? Is that the, that I don't think that culture would exist had we all stayed in the UK. Mm-hmm. That's true. All right. So uh, that was the serious ones. You guys better have some jokes for me, but <laughs> anything uh, come to mind so we can... Mine's a up? kebab, obviously, Bilal. Oh, obviously, that, was, that was what I was working for. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never forget showing up to LA for the first time. I wasn't into coffee at the time, but I went to a Starbucks and the, uh, you know, I ordered a very sugary hot chocolate. Uh, and this uh, it just it just burned and seared into my memory that clearly everyone in LA was looking at me order this thing it was covered in cream sprinkles I mean there's the whole thing it was so sugary right and, and, and so it, it was a sugary drink but you know I'm a, I'm a fairly strapping lad I'm not like a model but I can I can jog a jog a you know a five minute mile if I need to and like uh, you know I can get stuff done and this guy just wheels behind me and he just says does that guy have any idea how many calories are in that <laughs> and for me that was when I knew I was in a different culture right as much as we share a language we don't share a culture and there's so much that as a brit you've got to be careful about you've got to think about you've got to adapt to there's also so much to learn humor like that was a big thing for me is my humor before i moved here like eight nine years ago was very much straight face sarcastic very you (laughs) You can't do that and i still have a bit of that but there were so many times where i would say something with a straight face yeah and people thought i was being serious and yeah. I was like, oh, I can't explain this every time. It's not funny if I have to. You're hurting it. my soul. My rainbow <laughs> unicorn is being hurt. You're you're being so mean. It's incredible. I I, I just want to love you. Just, All right, so, so kebab for Jack. And uh, anything on the other side, Jack? Well, America. Costco. I think that's your answer. Oh, I agree. I love Costco. Yeah. Um, no, man. I've had a I've had an unbelievable time in America in the last ten years. Like as listeners. Uh, frequent listeners of the podcast will know I showed up to America 11 years ago. I was sleeping on a sofa. 
Uh, I lived in 12 different apartments in 12 months in New York, living out of a bag, doing design internships. I just bought a house with uh, my wife and we've had a baby. And not to say you can't do that anywhere else, but the 10 years that I've had, I think would be very hard to replicate. Name one person you know in the UK who's had employee liquidity at a startup. I can't find any. I don't know any. Any. I can't find any. It's insane. The whole of London talks about how we've got a burgeoning startup ecosystem. Where's the absolute chad of an angel walking around just cutting million dollar million pound checks like it's nothing. Better exist because none of these founders in the UK have actually issued enough stock for them to win and none of them have an outcome that's liquid enough for mm. them to actually get rich. And, and I don't say that money is everything, but if you've got none of it, it's definitely everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like the problem with the, the whole London startup ecosystem is I cannot find a single company that has made 40 people under 40 wealthy. And that is what New York has in spades. San Francisco has in spades. Now Austin has in spades. You can walk into any cafe and raise a million dollar seed round. No problem. And and that is what we don't have in London. You need to have a lot of young people with disposable income who are willing to dispose it on a bunch of crazy startups. So one of those things can hit. And so Monzo got eviscerated. Um, Revolut, all the founders around the country, transfer-wise, a bunch of them are Estonia, them where they fled London to, for tax havens. And like, so there's just no angel network of young people who are balling, and it's driving me crazy. Mm, that's fair, man. Yeah I, yeah, yeah, I think it's also downstream of like how people, like you said, Rick, culture, how people talk yeah. to each other, like what's celebrated. It just, it just makes me sad because I've been looking at it for nearly 15 years, and I'm like, not one of my friends is successful enough to like actually start contributing back to the ecosystem they help build. And it, mm. it, it it's just sad. Mm. It's just, it's just sad. Yeah. All right. Well, on that positive note, let's wrap <laughs> this up. <laughs> well, yeah. but, um, on the positive note, if any of you uh, are listening and are interested in moving out of the UK to, to the US, <laughs> I will connect you with everyone and make it as smooth as possible. I love it, so, man. Yeah. Thanks, Rick, that for is coming. a note to end on respect that Cheers. is a great yeah, yeah. way to do it and now all jokes aside if you are someone listening that's done that in the uk and we don't know about it please comment yeah below. i'm sure they yeah are. yeah yeah i mean i, know, I would I, love counter I, I will say there have been some great companies that have come out but like you said a lot of those might not spread the same way it does that's in what i mean is that you need the cycle of capital it's it's, it's not that's just it. objective outcomes if you look at the cap tables these these european vcs take like 80 percent of some of these guys it's insane yeah. That so is, my yes, point definitely. is, is if you don't spread the wealth, then it, it doesn't spread, right? If you don't yeah. give it to your employees, they don't give it to other companies, they don't spread new things. And, and I've asked every angel, every VC that I know in Europe, am I wrong on this? Can you find me any counterexamples? They present to me none. And so mm-hmm. I'd love counterexamples because I probably yeah, I would, am I'd wrong. I'd love to hear. I, mean, I know, I think yeah. you're, you know, Josh Buckley, right? And uh, his right. boy, Harry. Stephen. I drove him into Silicon Valley. I dropped him off at his YC interview. I mean, That's he and I entered the Bay on the same time. Wow. Yeah. So the, uh, there are British people that have come out here and done it. And I know his boy, Harry Stebbing, um, is totally. you know, really investing in that space. But I don't He's know done it. And I, and I love uh, Harry, but how many of his companies in London have given harry's team members and employees who work for his capital how many harry's has he created it's hard it's not his fault i'm not blaming him i'm just saying why is that and i think it's for two reasons the vcs are crap and the the founders are not understanding that if you share the wealth more then you result in more ecosystem growth you know and like 
And the, if you cut your team in properly, and this is something Josh and I did, because Josh and I invested together for a couple of years, is, um, is, is when you have a founder with a 10-person founding team, they can be absurdly generous with 10 people. And then, they can be, and then those 10 people are incentivized to be generous with the next 10 people down mm. in the capital stack. And what you have is a much more even distribution of capital among the people who actually do the bloody work. And, and that's what I care about very deeply. And what I love about Ethereum is it gives you technology to expand that way more widely. And so if I was to finish on a note is that the thing that I think is most exciting is you don't need to leave the UK to come and benefit from some of the magic anymore. Mm. It's all available to people with, with who get familiar with Ethereum. And all I would encourage everyone listening to this is just look at the ETH global um, network and go to one of the ETH global events. And if you don't learn something that changes your life there, I will be very surprised. Mm. Great way to put it, man. Respect. All right, dude. Thanks for coming on, man. This has been amazing. This might be the longest one we've done, actually. So we covered a lot of ground. Well, thanks for it's... tolerating me and uh, no, letting no, me rip off. A it's a fun medium. And, and as I recede from Twitter, I'm trying to invest in other mediums. And this is one of them I want to spend more time on. Yeah, like, no, I think it gives more space to have more nuance, which is important, man. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if you made it all the way here, let us know. I hope you guys enjoyed that special episode. And uh, we got a lot more coming for you guys. Uh, thanks again, Rick. We'll share some of your stuff in the show notes as well. And uh, yeah, keep spreading the word. We, we're growing every week. More people are listening and finding out about the podcast. And that only happens because you guys are sharing this in your DMs, in your group chats, on Slack, on Discord, etc. So please keep doing that. Yeah, we're, teach us how to TikTok. To, All of our TikTok exactly. games are terrible. So we got <laughs> to slice true. this up, dice it, get it on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning, man. I'm, I'm learning the video medium. We got we to gotta up our game. That's it, man. Um, anyway, so we'll see you again next, next week. And uh, appreciate it. And uh, have a good one, bro. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Cheers.